The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And this week on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when the godfather of cosmic horror, the director of Dust Devil, the 420 Idol, and Nicholas Goddamn Cage get together to make a film about a most killer color? What happens when that color is so alien in its magenta periwinkle hues that it can erode the very boundaries of the human soul? Is this what true horror is? Can these men combine capture such a blaring spectral essence in celluloid? Well, let's find out. Because today we are drinking in Richard Stanley's 2019 film adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. So sit back and grab a tall glass of water as we plow through this pink fever dream of eldritch Enochian destruction. Brought to you by Living That Alpaca Dream, The Dark Side of Angels, The Bright Side of Ancient Evil Gods, the power of magenta, and the one true savior, hydrology. And, of course, our safe word today is monochromatic. Anything to add, Benji? You know, Londonium, I've just had enough of uh, your fucking intro, okay? So why don't you just do me a favor and get the fuck out of my face? Actually, you know, I'll save you some time. I'll get the fuck out of yours. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! I, I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Ninja! I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Where? Oh, hi, Mark. London, how the hell are you? Yo, Benji. Actually, I do have a theory that I will be expounding upon later on how this movie actually is the direct sequel of Vampire's Kiss. And that opening quote solidified it. Oh, just you wait. Ah, gotta tell you, I'm doing a lot better this week than I was last week. This was not as much of a downer as that other movie. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't for me at the same time. Well, if you're some sort of H.P. Lovecraft fanatic, yeah, it's disappointing, but I mean, who's really that hardcore into H.P. Lovecraft? Yeah, some of us are. No, I will be probably bitching at length later about how impossible it is to adapt Lovecraft into a visual filmic medium. I keep wanting it to happen. I keep holding out hope. So if I didn't have as high of expectations for Nick Cage H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, I would probably be happier right now. Like, just go light some candles, draw a bath, put Reanimator on your laptop. You're going to be fine. You'll be fine after this. Don't worry. Oh, Reanimator is a whole other beggar. No, <laughs> Reanimator is a fantastic fucking film. It is, it's not a good Lovecraft adaptation, but it, it's a fun thing that works on its own. <laughs> so we'll talk about if this movie works on its own or not, too. What is this movie, London? This movie that whether or not it works on its own is debatable. What is this film? So this film, how would you describe this film? It was pitched as a horror film. It's not really. I mean, so. it has horror elements to it. I'm, uh, there's some body horror uh, approaching Cronenbergian styles in certain parts of it. But I'd say it's more of a, like a, kind of a slow burn type of movie. When I was watching this, someone else was walking in and out of the room, and they said, so when does the plot of the movie get going exactly? 
around the 50 minute mark of the film. They said that, walked out, and then shit went down in the movie. Were we watching the same movie? Because my main criticism of this movie is that it did not slow burn enough. Like, not even <laughs> close. So, I guess, uh, yeah, interesting. We have two different hot takes this well, week. Slow burn we is do a, not agree. It's a subjective term, I suppose, but... Hey, no, this, this movie unfolds way too quickly. But in general, in terms of why we chose this film initially for some cinema of cruelty experience, it is a Richard Stanley directed film. So that already is going to put it on the table. It's yo. an adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft short story. So Double that yo. adds to it. And it stars Nick Cage. So yo, yo, yo. those three things combined kind of create this like holy trinity of bizarre odd alienating experiences because oh, all three of those people are known for their bizarre weird alienating things that they do to think richard stanley went so long without making a film and this this is how he gets back into the game and if this is how he does it fuck yeah man let's keep that train going i say so benji what's the best thing about this movie I like a lot of things about this movie, but I have to, I think if I was going to narrow it down to one thing, it would probably just be like the general art direction that the movie takes. I love movies that are colorful, that get away from, you know, this trend in action movies we had going for a little while, action movies and supernatural films, horror movies, where everything is like, it's all dull and gray and just monotone. I love how bright and colorful this movie is. I like any supernatural horror film that is trying to tell you a scary thing but doing it in the brightest way possible so that's my my best thing about this movie is just the general look of it i would say yeah i guess a carryover theme from midsummer last week just bright bright horror movies the best thing about this movie to me is that you can tell that this was made by someone who knew a lot of details about hp lovecraft there's a lot of little hidden gems Oh, nice. From yeah. the H.P. Lovecraft oeuvre or trivia facts or whatnot, that's, right? That's are... good to know, like, if you are a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, that, like, those moments stick out. Like, I could pick up a few things from the book itself, and I know what Arkham is, so those little details I got. But it's good to know that, like, if you are someone who has deep-dived into Lovecraft's work in the past, that some of those things come out in this movie. Yes. So, I mean, we'll, we'll also, I've got a... A butt during my, my worst thing. But for the good thing, yeah, there are some real just like great little world building treasures in here. And so I, of course, will be annotating those like crazy as we go. <laughs> Got that to look forward to. All right. So what's I the guess worst the, thing? The worst thing about this movie, just personally, not enough Tommy Chong. You know, there's the old saying, always leave your audience wanting more. I think they could have gone a little bit further. I still would have wanted more out of Tommy Chung from this movie. He was I great. Thoroughly in this. enjoyed him in this film. That was a good time. That kind of gets into my worst thing is that this movie, for all of the really great little H.P. Lovecraft gems that they put into their world build, they seem to understand the world build of H.P. Lovecraft, but they missed severely on the tone of H.P. Lovecraft. It was really sad because there were so many little great things that I'm like, oh man, this is going to be spectacular because these are some H.P. Lovecraft fans. But this is also a Richard Stanley film who is a big fan of monster movies. <laughs> and <laughs> as, and I, I will talk about this throughout that there, or I will talk about this later, that as much as people like to associate H.P. Lovecraft with monsters, 
wasn't actually really H.P. Lovecraft's thing. His was all about unseeable horrors, slow mm-hmm. creeping builds and escalation of just the cosmic nihilism that surrounds you at all times. And so I think that this movie just was not able to capture the tone. It is Richard Stanley monster movie, but with H.P. Lovecraft insider details. So it's a very bizarre combination. So things that we're going to be talking about during this episode, Benji's going to look a little bit about why magenta is awesome for the color selection of A Color Out of Space. So many reasons. Got lots of annotations for you about the Necronomicon that's in here and the witchcraft that she's practicing. We'll also be looking a little bit later about whether this movie does work on its own as a film. We have differing opinions on that. Benji thinks it does. I think it doesn't. So we're going to have a little hot takes debate. And then also looking at other adaptations of Color Out of Space, because this is a short story by H.P. Lovecraft that has been attempted to be translated multiple times into film. Mm. We'll see if this one was the most successful or not. <laughs> Suspense. <laughs> uh, not Spoiler, not a high bar to pass. <laughs> it's true. And yet also maybe not the one that comes in the best. Oh, boy. Suspense. Yes. Right. So... The short summary of this film is that we are going to have a family that's living out in the middle of the woods, somewhere outside of Arkham or inside Arkham County. Around. And a meteorite is going to fall to Earth, carrying with it a strange color, a color out of space, one might say. That's the name of the movie. This color is going to... Not so slowly in the movie, but very slowly in the short story, start to have mind-alterating and, in the movie, physically embodied altering effects on this farm's inhabitants until everything explodes into a rainbow horror show of magenta. Well, it's a rainbow whose only two colors are magenta and cyan, so a varied color palette. The color is supposed to be a color never seen before and is a color that the human eye can't quite process because it comes from an alien space. Which in a literary medium, yeah, that you can work that in. In a visual medium, we can't just create a new color for the sake of the film. Yeah, it's real tricky. And this starts out with one of the things that makes... Lovecraft really, really hard to visualize is that he didn't even like to visualize in his writing. He was very mm. withholding and loved to create things that were unnameable, unseeable, and unpronounceable. And so once you try to put those into the mouths of actors to pronounce and for the audience <laughs> to see, things fall apart. Yeah, so we have this color that is supposed to be an extraterrestrial type of color, and it is going to wreak havoc on this family. So that's that's the short summary. Mm-hmm. And now, why don't we do a slightly longer summary of this film, yes. as we are wont to do. We open on a tableau of trees. Yeah, we do, yes. I, there's a lovely touch there where the trees, we're slowly moving through the trees, and as the opening credits are going, the names are just stuck to the trees, moving slightly with them. And on my first viewing of this, I, my thought process was, wow, that's, that's beautiful, man. This is great composition. I love how the, the names are moving. Holy shit, Tommy Chong is in this? Whoa! That was my like, thing, what too. I was like, hell? wow, this is gorgeous. Chong? Like, what the fuck? I did not know he was in this movie. 
Nicolas Cage and Tommy Chong in that movie. So slow your roll there, Richard Stanley. As somebody who was very familiar with the short story, I was trying to think on who in the world would Tommy Chong play from the short story. Turns out he plays no one from the short story. He plays a character that is invented specifically for this movie. So we will get to the Chong. But yes, right now we're opening on this very beautiful collection of images of the forest made to look like this alternate New England, which is where all of H.P. Lovecraft stuff is set. This film is going to have been shot in Portugal. So we're making Portugal look like alternate New England, and it's working. One of the things I did notice, though, is that we get this voiceover. Mm -hmm. So the voiceover filters in. I have high hopes already because it's starting out with the opening paragraph of Lovecraft's short story. So that was really cool. There are two things, though, that we'll revisit point one, mm -hmm. which is as much as I love that it opened with Lovecraft's short story, Lovecraft's short story is opening 44 years later after the event happens. And so it seems very much like looking back, you know, on this time, this horrible mm -hmm. time. And yet we're going to find fairly shortly that this is actually in the movie all taking place simultaneously. So the opening doesn't quite work with its own timeline in this film. But I do like that they incorporated the language. The voice itself, I end up loving the actor who plays Ward. I would mm -hmm. not have cast him any differently except for his voice in the read over here. Set against this backdrop of trees, it's a very young, youthful voice, and so it kind of opens like some sort of teen CW show about like vampire witch hunters or something. It's kind of the vibe that one gets when this very youthful voice is reading about the spindly trees of Arkham. I'm like, I'm getting some Twilight vibes right now, man. <laughs> you say it like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just it was a tonal <laughs> surprise. Okay, well, we've obsessed enough over this. Let's go ahead and get to a scene that has nothing you can obsess over, which is a young woman doing witchcraft. Yes. Okay, so it opens with a young woman doing witchcraft. But establishing's important. Yes. Right? I, I love this scene because it gives us both info that this young girl, she's into the witchcraft, and also tells us something about her mother. And it, this is great storytelling, movie storytelling for me. This is good stuff. Yeah, and there's also, once again, this kind of setup of these are some people who are going to provide us some Easter eggs about Lovecraft in general. One of the things that we get in the short story is this idea that the last big paranoid thing to happen in this space is the fact that the Salem witch trials had happened around the area and affected. So it's kind of a modernized view of, well, now there's actually just openly practicing neo-pagans in this space in which the Salem witch trials once occurred. So we're kind of modernizing the story a little bit, which is cool. It's got to feel so badass to practice witchcraft like in New England. It's like, yeah, fuck history. That's what we do. Yeah, this chick's kind of rad. She's clearly a teenager. She wears a lot of fishnet stockings and shorts throughout uh, this thing. She's got the, the purple streaks in her hair. And in this, she's wearing this beautiful little lace dress and the cloak, and she has a a horse that she rides. This would have been the, the girl in high school that I would have had a crush on, but would have been terrified to approach. This is a rad high schooler that is practicing a certain type of ritual magic out here on the banks of a lake. And Ward Phillips, 
who is wearing a Miskatonic University t-shirt, is going to come up and witness this ritual. So another little great detail. He's wearing his Miskatonic University tee mm-hmm. <laughs> in reference to the famous and apparently only university in Arkham that's ever brought up in HBO <laughs> Grass Short Stories, which is great. It's also where one of the Necronomicon copies are stored is in the library oh, of okay. the Miskatonic. So we're, we're getting some world build, some subtle world build. And she is invoking some archangel names as she is doing this ritual. After he interrupts, she's going to be like, oh, Wicca or Alexandrian. And she looks surprised by this because she's like, <laughs> Check out the big brains on Ward. Wow. Yeah. She's like, here, I thought you were some basic bitch, but no, like, you, you know a thing or two. And he's like, I went to Miskatonic University. I know a thing or two about, you know, occult magic. But it is curious that he asks her about these two magical practices. Alexandrian is a form of Wicca, first of all. So that's kind of like asking somebody if they're Christian or Methodist, where it's oh. like, well, that's kind of an awkward <laughs> phraseology because Alexandrians are Wiccan. It's just a branch of Wicca. And she's like, well, which one do you think? And he's like, Alexandrian, definitely. She's like, well, that's the second mistake you've made today. So she rejects this Alexandrian label. Now, what is going on here? I'm going to break down some of the witchcraft. She knew I just could not wait to hear about the witchcraft. I know. It's. It's really important. The invocation of angels is going to be something called Enochian magic. And so that's what she's doing here is an Enochian magic ritual. And this is a system developed by a man named John Dee and Edward Kelly in the 16th century when John Dee became convinced that, well, that's, that's some loaded language. Be a good anthropologist. And John Dee in his diaries talks about how An angel appeared to him in an obsidian mirror and gave him the Enochian language, the language of the angels. And so him and his friend Edward Kelly spent a lot of time trying to contact and commune with these angels and develop an Enochian magic. And then some cats are going to come along later in the 1800s, Mathers, Westcott, and Woodman, and they're going to found the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And they're going to take this Enochian magic from John Dee and create this concept of the watchtowers and whatnot. Later, Wicca, through Gerald Gardner, is going to kind of take the Watchtower component, but they're going to leave the Enochian stuff behind. Thus, what really seems to be going on here is some Golden Dawn tradition things. Alexandrian Wicca that's going to derive from Gardarian stuff later is a little bit looser. They kind of have this philosophy of, like, if it works, use it. So it's more eclectic. They do sometimes incorporate some of this Enochian ritual stuff. So Ward's guess at Alexandrian is actually more on point than just Gardnerian Wiccan. But she does seem to be practicing some straight up Golden Dawn stuff because she's not invoking the corners or anything. She's just talking Enochian stuff. And why this is cool on an H.P. Lovecraft level is because John Dee, the guy who brings us Enochian magic, is listed by H.P. Lovecraft in his History of the Necronomicon in 1927 He's named as one of the translators of the Necronomicon. Lovecraft created the Necronomicon. So that's another thing we should say. The Necronomicon was never an actual text. It's something that Lovecraft invented for his world. But in order to root it into the actual space of our known history, he had John Dee, the father of Enochian magic, be one of the translators of one of the versions of the Necronomicon. And so there is a lot of H.P. Lovecraft scholarship out there connecting Enochian magic rituals and John Dee to this concept of the Necronomicon and the speculations of what might be in the Necronomicon. 
Um, so yeah, she seems to be doing a Necronomicon version, alternate history version of the Golden Dawn tradition. And that is a very, very insider H.P. Lovecraft reference. Because only like the true nerds have read, you know, like the history of the Necronomicon that was published after his death in 1938, where they're like, oh yeah, this random occult dude from the 16th century is one of the Necronomicon translators. We should have this girl do one of his rituals. Fun times. And that's the podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're <laughs> glad you tuned in for this little lesson. I mean, we, um, we got to get that all in there just in case. People would be asking, fuck, didn't you talk about that Golden Dawn action? Come on, man. Yeah. I do like that this uh, character is Ward Phillips. And as I found out that H.P. Lovecraft's full name was Howard Phillips Lovecraft. So having this narrator named Ward Phillips, like, all right, I see yeah. your game, Richard Stanley. Well done. Well played. Let me see what you're doing there. Yeah, another little kind of reference in there. Indeed. Although he is wearing his Miskatonic University t-shirt, he apparently has graduated because he's now working as a surveyor for the water dam they want to build. A hydroelectric company. They want to build a big dam around the area where this is all. He's a hydrolyst. Whatever. He says his name. Hydrolysist. Hydrolysist. Hydro. Yeah. Hydroelectricist. So he, he seems a little interested in this girl, especially when she gets up on that horse that she brought and she's riding it barefoot, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, nice detail. She does have a tattoo of a pentagram on her foot. This is something the Golden Dawn uses, something Wicca uses. So once again, this doesn't narrow it down too much. But what I really would have loved to see here is actually her having an, like an elder sign tattoo instead of a, a pentagram would have been a great just alternative Arkham space to put an elder sign on her because that would have been like oh she's a practitioner of the necronomicon specifically can't have it all london can't have it all even though you're saying a wasted moment a wasted moment this young woman is named lavinia lavinia heads home to her house where her father played by we all know why we're here nicholas fucking cage who is an alpaca farmer yes Yes, uh, he's like, I want, you need to be wearing a helmet when you ride that horse. He's like, come on, helmet, shoes, maybe put on some shoes. Uh, I mean, come on, Dad. I'm, I'm doing my, my cool wicked action. Don't, don't hush my buzz. Jeez. But then he does that TV dad thing where he's like, it's, it's not really me who cares. Like, I just want your mom to get mad yeah. at you and thus me for letting you ride without shoes. Mom kind of cares. She's more sad that her son might be smoking dope. Uh, Lavinia heads into the barn and tells her brother to like, you know, straighten up and get things taken care of. There's a great exchange where her older brother, Benny, says, I'm not your barn, bitch. And she just says, actually, you are. Take care of those alpacas. <laughs> he calls her a witch demon sucking succubus or whatever. So there, there's some tension among these siblings. Oh, there's sibling rivalries going on. Lavinia finds her youngest brother, Jack-Jack, out at the well where he's staring in there because his dad told him, if you look hard enough, you can see stars and foreshadowing. Yeah, the person I was watching this was like, I think he meant at night, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't explain that part. Jack Jack, he's like five years old. You can't, you don't, whatever. He doesn't, he's not going to yeah, get that. Yeah, so this kid definitely already has an obsession with this well, yeah. which is kind of a fun little setup. And then they all sit down to dinner. Mm-hmm. This daughter is just going to throw a lot of attitude because she's a teenager and she'd rather be eating fast food because processed meat tastes like heaven and whatever casserole dish. They do a close up on that food. Admittedly, that food looked kind of funky, if you ask me. They're, I mean, I think Nicolas Cage, he calls it a, 
a melange of goats and chicken and other meat that really should not go together, but... Yeah, but apparently it's the mother's favorite dish, the Mother Teresa. Oh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of the mother, we meet the mother who's up in the attic. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Uh, she is, I guess she's a day trader? I wasn't quite sure. She did something with finances yeah, and stocks sure and whatever. Yeah, and at some point at dinner, the daughter is going to ask Cage, like, why in the world did you even buy those alpacas, Dad? Like, they're stupid animals to own. And Nicolas Cage looks physically just, like, super crushed by this alpaca slam. And you're like, why are you so affected by that, man? They're like, the animal your of the future. Yeah. This is just, like, a throwaway thing. But, yeah, he's, he's clearly hurt. He's like, no, this is, this is my passion. I am dedicated to alpaca motion. Motherfucking alpacas. All right, so alpacas. Finally, we get to the meat of this. I'm thinking, like, okay, alpacas are cute and all, but for some reason I started getting curious about some alpaca stats to see how special these little guys really were. Turns out they're insanely expensive animals. Really? I wouldn't have picked alpacas as the uh, the bourgeois uh, farm animal of choice. Yeah, so, well, I mean, like, apparently there are certain times if, you're going to get an alpaca that's a little scraggly and doesn't have breeding capabilities and all this stuff. It is possible, in theory, to find an alpaca for as low as $300. But that range goes up to $50,000. What? And most alpacas cost between $3,000 and $10,000 per alpaca. Okay, I... So... I mean, do we know how much, like, your average cow costs? Let's uh let's look that up. How much does a cow cost and where can I get one? Let's see, this looks like a good link. See, so yeah, it seems like cattle prices are a little bit more up in the air, according to my extensive research on <laughs> cow prices just now. That slaughter cows will average fifty dollars per hundred weight, and that the really big guys, the five hundred and fifty pound steers and heifers should bring in about 145 and 130 per hundred weight. So you're looking at a couple hundred dollars for some cows, which is not a $10,000 alpaca. Yeah, going by price per weight, a cow is just, it's pocket change compared to an alpaca. So yeah, my God, I didn't, I had no idea alpacas were so pricey. Yeah, so like Nick Cage's concern for the alpaca's well-being I mean, he should care about all animals' well-being in general, but this is legit if this is a 10 grand per little alpaca investment. And why alpacas are so expensive is that, first, alpacas are not an indigenous animal to the United States. There aren't okay. any just natural alpacas around. That's, yeah, we don't have songs about the alpacas roaming free on the prairie land. So. We should, though. But... <laughs> They were first imported into the U.S. in 1984. Okay. And so this is a relatively new animal. Yeah. As it were. And then at some point, like most of the alpacas, I guess, are in Peru and came from Peru initially. But then at some point, for a whole bunch of reasons, import from Peru into the U.S. is no longer an option. And so currently the only alpacas you can import are from Canada and Australia. So it's very hard to get alpacas imported. And I guess the gestation cycle of an alpaca is very 
lengthy and only yields one little paca per you know year or something so these are these are tricky animals i guess to to raise so nick cage is putting in the the good work here the the good fight okay raising those alpacas right on well it's a harder to access dream than i had initially known respect to alpaca farmers The mother asks for some wine, and Nicolas Cage goes down into their wine cellar. They have a lot of wine down there. That's a huge wine cellar that they have, and they got a lot of the good stuff down there. We linger on that staircase, because we're going to revisit that later on. You'll find out when. Uh, Not as much as we should, though, and we don't revisit these wine bottles as much as we should. No, it's odd, but I think they just want us to know, like, this wine cellar exists. Just remember that. It's a thing. Just saying. Chekhov's wine cellar. Yeah, Chekhov's wine cellar. After dinner, mom and dad are talking, and it turns out that, well, one, the mother has, she she's uncomfortable with herself. She had a mastectomy not too long ago, and that's making her feel a little weird about her body. We do get a little backstory on Nicolas Cage's character, where we find out that this was his, his dad's farm, and in a moment that is very telling of, of what Nick Cage is going to be doing throughout this movie, he says... I can hear my father's intellectually abusive voice. And then he says something along the lines of, you're never going to be a painter. And I'm like, oh, that that voice. I've heard that voice before mm-hmm. that he is doing. That's I was interesting. Like, was your father Peter Loeb? <laughs> very odd. <laughs> did, you, did he work in publishing? Was he was he trying to find a very uh, a contract at some point or another? I don't know. We'll get into that later on. Later that night, uh, Lavinia, she's stirring in her sleep. The big brother, he's in his room. He's playing a a video game that involves space. Nice. And on his wall is a phrase, no flesh shall be spared, which is actually a uh, kind of a a sly reference to Richard Stanley's first film, Hardware, which was post-apocalyptic, involved robots and body horror, that sort of thing. It did. Mm -hmm. And it also is a fitting message for this film as well. As is Lavinia's t-shirt that it cuts away from, which is don't trust anyone. So, (laughs) yeah, there's some optimistic Mm -hmm. kids here in this room. So this is one of the parts to talk about how we've set up these characters. And they're set up in a way that could have been interesting. And yet they're really not going to come up again. Like the fact that Lavinia practices witchcraft is going to come up slightly one more time. Mm -hmm. But this idea of the wife, Teresa, being a cancer survivor, we could have done really interesting things with that. And I guess I'll expound on that even more later. We have the father, Nathan, who apparently wanted to be a painter and then moved out to continue on the Apalco farm legacy or whatever. Nothing's going to come up again of his painting stuff. The older son, Benny, is really into astronomy. He's got this program open on his computer and yet we're not going to actually use him being an astronomer ever again other than to have this thing open and so we have these yeah these setups and we've got like the wine cellar which later when it turns out they can't drink the water that would have been a really interesting thing to go to anyway actually yeah this uh won't yet pay off until we can explain it later so i will get back into this why don't we even talk about this movie this movie sucks god damn it does a little bit, but there's some <laughs> there's some really redeemable moments. Known as the rest of the movie. But right. enough of this. It is time for that color out of space to arrive. And arrive yeah. it does. There's a lot of the house is shaking. 
Jack Jack is gets up wondering what the hell is going on, and boom! Meteor out of space lands in their front yard. And the entire room is going to glow magenta, purple, pink for a little while. Mm-hmm. So did you want to talk about the color theory here first? Yeah, we can get that out of the way. I mentioned magenta a whole lot as we were watching this. And the difficult thing with a short story that says it was a color that they had never seen before. Uh, there was actually a quote I loved from the short story that I made sure to get. The color, which resembled some of the bands in the meteor's strange spectrum, were almost impossible to describe, and it was only by analogy that they called it color at all. So, in the the short story, the color coming from this thing, they're like, is that even a color that we're seeing? We don't know. Obviously, like I said, literary, you can do that because the mind will just see whatever it tries to see, and can't picture that. But in a visual medium, you can't make up a color. What's interesting about the fact that this thing gives off magenta light is the nature of the color magenta. Just for a fun exercise, picture a rainbow. Where is magenta on the rainbow? Ooh, see where you're going with this? Yeah, magenta's not on the rainbow. Because, <laughs> this will sound really strange, magenta is not a color. What I mean by that is, there is no individual wavelength of light that creates magenta. When we see magenta, what we're seeing is always a combination of red and blue. It's never just one wavelength of light. Magenta light is not a thing you can create with a singular source. It always has to be a combination of red and blue. So if you see magenta on a TV screen or you see like a light in a club or somewhere that's magenta, that's always a combination of red and blue LEDs emitting the same frequency at the same amount and creating magenta. And most people think red and blue. No, that makes purple. In print, it does. Or if you're working with paints and dyes, red and blue create purple. But in light, purple is its own thing. It's like purple, violets, you know, on the rainbow. Magenta is what's known as an extra special color. It's a color that cannot exist unless you combine something else. Like pink is an extra special color because pink is red combined with white or what have you, or brown, which is orange combined with something in the, in the grayscale. So yeah, some colors just, they can't be their own thing. So the fact that this alien rock is emitting magenta light naturally is very unusual. And I think if you were able to go back in time and show someone magenta light, they would think to themselves, that's a color unlike anything I've ever seen, because there's no way prior to good LED technology that you could create magenta light. Super cool. I hadn't really thought of that. So I'm a fan now of the fact that they chose magenta. I was already a decent enough fan of the choice for magenta just because I mean, it looks cool. Of Mandy. Yeah, no, also just because it looks cool, but... Oh, yeah. Mandy producers also worked in this thing, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I think they just really like that magenta hue. But I do love the idea that if you're going to have to pick a unnatural color, pick a legitimately unnatural color, yeah. even if it is one we can see. It's true. So... so. So that's, uh, that's why ma the color magenta is in this movie a whole lot. Back in Arkham County, 
Yeah, they go outside, they check things out, are very confused, and say, well, we gotta talk about this tomorrow. I like that Nicolas Cage at one point goes to, and he pours himself some some bourbon, and they're like, you're having, are you drinking right now? And he's like, under the circumstances, I don't know what else I can do. Yeah, it seems like it's as good of a course of action as anything else, but it does set up this idea that he might have a bit of a problem with alcohol or turning to alcohol. They're gonna kind of revisit that a couple of times. Mm Mm-hmm. Get this shot of the meteorite that has fallen on their lawn and all of its magenta, purple, rainbow refraction glory. It's quite a beautiful aesthetic. Yeah. But they apparently call the cops because the cops show up the next morning, as does the mayor, which seems like a weird person to be in attendance. Mayor of Arkham does not fuck around. Then Ward the hydrologist is back. And the thing that's going to be great, and this is going to remain consistent throughout the movie, is that... People in authoritative positions are just going to keep asking the hydrologist to take a look at stuff that has nothing to do with water. And it's going to start with this meteorite because he's going to come in. He's going to be like, well, I'm the hydrologist. And they're like, well, what do you make of this, you know, extraterrestrial meteor? Step the fuck back. A hydrologist is on this. Don't worry. It's super great in a weird way where he's just like he becomes the de facto like, well, what do you think, hydrologist? And he's like, well, I think this is a meteor that crashed to the earth yeah when he introduces himself to nicholas cage nick cage says let me guess from boston like just so derisively like oh you're a boston motherfucker aren't you like no no i'm from providence which also is where hp lovecraft spent i think most of his life right yes and which arkham is heavily based on it's fun that we have this setup that boston and providence are apparently parts of these this world as is arkham huh yeah, it's kind of like when, you know, Superman, he flies from Metropolis to New York. Like, uh... There you go, they're adjacent. Yeah. No, it's all just kind of part of this, like, yeah, New England <laughs> clusterfuck. And it, it fits in. So I do like that it's like, oh, you're you're a Boston boy, you don't know about, like, the weird stuff of Arkham. Kind of like the Ravenswood spinoff of Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> like, you've got Rosewood. Oh, yes. That has no supernatural stuff whatsoever, and then, like, Ravenswood... Has ghosts. Boom. The guys look at the rock, but there's no time to look at the rock because it's time to milk. And milk they shall. We get some scenes of Nicolas Cage milking an alpaca. Might be the most interesting milking scene of all time. And because Nick Cage is super into milking these alpacas. And his son is like egging him on. He's like, nice one, dad. Yeah. They offer some milk to Ward and Ward is like, uh, yeah, I'm lactose intolerant. Also, it's unprocessed raw alpaca milk, so no, I'm not. No. No, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Like, pass. Hard pass. Oh, uh, yeah. And they mention Ezra, played by your hero and mine, Tommy Chong. Yeah, so Ezra's going to be the squatter on the land, apparently, because Ward asks, is there anybody else who lives on the property? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, Ezra's our squatter. So, and yeah, he's a he's a special, special dude. Yes, he is. God damn, is he a special, God special dude? Damn, yes. They meet him smoking weed. What do you know about that? We walk into his place, and it's just this glorious art masterpiece inside this trailer. Tommy, or I call him Tommy Ezra, has a cat named G Spot, which is endlessly amusing to Ben. He says, "Like, isn't that cool? It's a pussy named G Spot, right? Huh? Huh?" For a second, I thought Ben was you, and I'm like, have you finally resorted to speaking of yourself in the third person, you goddamn asshole? Ward's like, 
Yeah, and Ward just says, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. So Ezra, anyway. Ezra offers him a cup of java, and Benny takes the cup. Well, they both technically initially take the cup. Benny goes right into drinking mm. it, as does Ezra. But the hydrologist looks at this water and this weird brackish film that's on top of it. And he's like, yeah, this does not look like something I want to put in my body. <laughs> What are you guys I, drinking? I know she just tells him, like, it's straight from the mother's tit, man. Yeah, he's like, well, I think there might be something wrong with your pipes, maybe. And they're like, nah, we just take this directly, you know, from the well. He's like, well, then I think there's something wrong with your water. And he does not drink. Mm-hmm. While the other two do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it begins to storm. Yes. Well, Chong has such a great reaction right now where it's storming. He's like, all right. Tell it, baby, tell it. And he's just really excited about this. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It does. Tell there it. is Come a deleted on. scene oh. that takes place in between. So I did watch all the deleted oh, okay, scenes great. that were on the DVD. And there was some setup to Ezra's character, which I would have left in there. Really? So mm-hmm. apparently Ezra tells Ward that he used to work for the local power plant for years. Mm-hmm. And now he is so stuffed with radiation that he could light up the eastern seaboard or whatever. (laughs) So it sets up this radiation narrative, or would have set up this kind of radiation Mm -hmm. parallel narrative, which is mostly what you actually get in the short story. So it was weird that they took that out. But his fuck-the-man speech that he delivers alongside this being, yeah, Mm -hmm. let off from this irritated plant sort of sets up his conspiracy ways, yeah, um, which is kind of cool. Given his insight later in the film, it would have made a sense to leave that backstory in there, but yeah. Um, he also talks about meteors here, actually, oh, um, okay. about how a lot of world religions and folklore derives first and foremost from meteors or has a lot to do with meteorites, including one of the origin of life theories that a meteorite initially crashed on the earth and brought with it the early strands mm-hmm. of living oh, life yeah. to the planet, which is also where we get, you know, things like the movie Prometheus. Mm. And so that also kind of seemed to set up a underlining thesis. I don't know why <laughs> they cut the scene whatsoever. And Ward at that point asks like, hey, man, how do you know all this stuff? And Chuck's like, I Google, man. <laughs> yeah, then, um, oh. then it starts storming. And that's when Chuck goes like, all right, like, tell it, baby, tell it. Cuts to Lavinia, who's just standing out in the rain, letting it just wash all over her. Yeah. And she's like, it's so beautiful. And all I could think, I watched this movie a couple of times, you know, to go back and take notes. And each time, all I hear is, like, Nev Campbell voice from, like, the craft in my head going, like, these are my gifts. (laughs) When she, like, wakes up on the, the beach in the craft and it's storming and she's, yeah, it's a very similar delivery, like a, a young witch just. Seeming ecstatic in the storm. Damn right. Elsewhere, Ward is doing some litmus, uh, litmus test, you know, litmus strip test that comes out magenta. What? He tries to make some calls. They're all scrambled and static. He feels like someone's watching him. There's magenta whiffs of smoke moving around his camp. He's also reading The Willows. Did you know anything about this book? So, yes, The Willows is a novella by English author... Algernon Blackwood. That, that's a, quite a first name that I'm not sure I got right. Algernon, I believe, because you have flowers for him typically. But it was published in 1907. And 
it was actually incredibly influential on our horror author H.P. Lovecraft, who considered it to be the finest supernatural tale in English literature and often credited it in his writings as his influence into the world of weird fiction. Richard Stanley, he does his homework. Yeah, so another little nice Easter egg there. Mm -hmm. And the plot of this is two friends on a canoe trip down the Danube River. For most of it, it's really just focused on the surrounding environment and how these threatening characteristics of the environment continue to expand and grow until the environment itself is the horror and the trees that seem to move on their own and have a life of their own becomes this central point of the focus, which also we'll find with Lovecraft's Color Out of Space story, a lot of focus. There are just paragraphs dedicated to the movement of the tree. Mm, yes. Yeah, so a nice little Willows reference. All right. Well, crazy things are happening all around. We also establish that this rainbow shit is like fucking with the electricity, right? Like the car turns on, the radio turns on. This is a weird little thing he notices. But there's also this really, one of the really great shots that this movie does well when this movie is subtle, it is so good. Mm -hmm. It's when they take it too far and don't trust the source material that's a problem. But the subtle thing that happens here is he's going to take the flashlight and he's going to walk out into the dark. And all we get vision-wise is this beam of the flashlight that occasionally just catches these rainbow glimmer spectrums yes. of something in the darkness. It's beautiful. That's really all we needed in the scene. But yeah, then it's going to turn on his car and turn on the radio and like fuck with his phone. Um, now we proceed. If I may, yes. We you may. Oh, thank God. Thank you, London, for allowing allow me. It. Yes. Oh, she's allowing it, folks. Don't worry. We can keep the podcast going because London allows it. The next day, Nicholas Cage and his wife are at the crater. The meteor is gone. Nicholas Cage is like, how could anything so big just vanish all of a sudden? Oops-a-daisy. The news crew is now arriving. Later that night, a scene I love is Nicolas Cage watching the news reports at home, and he's just so mad at how he looks. He's like, could anyone have thought to bring me a goddamn comb? The uh, Chiron on the bottom of the screen keeps changing. It calls him a UFO witness. He's like, I didn't say I was a UFO witness. What the hell? The news reporter asks him, were you sober when this happened? Uh, I had had some bourbon prior. I, I do that sometimes. And then the changes to bourbon enthusiast UFO witness, alpaca yeah. amateur farmer, <laughs> which is just so Amateur weird. alpaca farmer. And the reporter's going to say like, yes, and this meteorite has uh, vanished before we were able to come and record. Like They're just making him look crazy. This is added by the fact that Nicolas Cage is scratching his neck, his head mm. the entire time. Yeah. His skin is itchy. Yeah, he looks very disheveled. Nick Cage is bothered by how he's coming off in this, so he's just becoming increasingly agitated in the living room as well, yelling for his wife, Teresa, who's in the kitchen just methodically cutting carrots. And, of course, in a horror movie, whenever you see somebody methodically cutting carrots in a trance, like, you know their fingers are going to come with it the, at some point. The next point. scene is not going to be the family has a nice dinner and everyone's cool about it. No, the next scene is mom... Cuts off her fingers, doesn't even seem to realize it. A great shot where she raises her now bloodied hand and just almost in a day says, dinner is ready. Yeah, and you're like, bitch, dinner is not ready. You yeah. are still in the middle of cutting that carrot. Nicholas Cage immediately takes her to the hospital. Oldest brother Benny is in charge. And Nick is like, make sure you get those alpacas in. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's really concerned about these alpacas. Mm, big deal. These kids are going to be left alone for an unspecified amount of time, but at least a day and a night. We get the Arkham seven-day forecast on the TV, which was another fun little detail that oh, lists yeah? Arkham County, Dunwich, Ipswich, Amesbury, and Kingsport. Oh, they mentioned the other towns. Nice. And so all those okay. are listed underneath the the Arkham sort of area. It's going to be in the 60s for the week. Some brain Tuesday and Wednesday. So it looks like it is Tuesday is the, the day mark here. Ah, plot point. It's Tuesday, though it feels like a Thursday. Yeah, I know. What are you going to do? But the next day, Benny, he's leading the alpacas around, just getting them some exercise, as you tend to do. They're all having some water. Lavinia has some coffee. Now the alpacas are acting kind of weird. They're all a little nervous. In my notes, it just says that someone calls someone else maggot dick. I assume that's Lavinia talking to Benny, but I... Yeah, that's... um, It's not important to anything. I just... That's a glorious insult. (laughs) Hurry up with those you alpacas, like one, you? maggot dick. As they all go about their little chores, Benny's tending to the alpacas. There's a great deleted scene that I also wish they would have left in Do where so. Benny's out walking the alpacas, getting super stoned, and then tells the alpacas about a dream he had. <laughs> oh, and oh boy. the way that this actor delivers this dream speech is more endearing and captivating than any of the other work he did in the film because he just doesn't get a lot of screen time otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, it was just about how he was, like, put in charge of their family as they were traveling to some extra-dimensional planet. And, like, what are they going to do now, man? But, like, the alpacas keep trying to walk away from him. And he's like, hey, man, I know this isn't as interesting. Like, hold on, I'll make it short. Sit down and listen to my story. It's kind of great. <laughs> awesome. Youngest brother, Jack-Jack, he's sitting, staring at the well, whistling. Lavinia says, like, what the hell are you doing? I'm whistling with the man in the well. I'm like, okay, yeah, great kid. Yeah, sure, kid, that checks out. I mean, mm-hmm. he was looking for stars earlier. Lavinia's feeling sick, so oh, she's yeah. like, whatever, you whistle at that well, I have to go vomit. As you do. And also her cell phone is that she's trying to call dad, dad is trying to call her, no one can get through to each other, it's just static no matter which way you do things. Jack-Jack looks down to the well, and there's something moving down there, looking back up at him. And out will hatch... Magenta Mantis! Yes, the Magenta Mantis. I I hated this decision that it was a Magenta Mantis, because <laughs> it would have been, like, whatever if it was just the Mantis, but then we go into Magenta Mantis vision. Yeah. We don't need this camera POV. Like, we don't need it at all. No, it is always odd to me when we get, like, an alien point of view and it's vision that is markedly worse than human vision because this ant just sees blurry things in magenta and cyan and it's all weird and wavy. Like, how is that a helpful way to see the world? I don't get it. Yeah, well, it also doesn't do anything to the narrative other than disrupt the viewer and make them realize, like, okay, so whose POV otherwise are we watching this through, right? Like, you can't disrupt your omniscient camera narrator to just, for two seconds, give some other camera POV that is never spoken of again. Richard Stanley, you hack, you deserve to be fired from Island of Dr. Moreau. How dare you? Through his interviews from this film, like, he tried really hard. He's a humble dude. Yeah. I'm not trying to rip on Richard Stanley. I'm just really critiquing this bug POV decision. <laughs> Sometimes good people make bad choices, and this is one of them. All like, right, I got all right. really angry by the bug POV. Uh, yeah, there you go. 
I did, however, love that Lavinia is going to lose time. So oh, yeah. we get her washing the bloody knife in the kitchen and she's like, don't throw up again because no. uh, you're washing your mother's blood off of this kitchen knife because the carnage has just been left in the kitchen and she has to deal with it. And the clock says 1123 and then it's suddenly going to be 445 and she's still standing in front of the sink and the sink no. is now overflowing with blood. Once again... This movie just goes back and forth between just going so overboard and then having these really great subtle moments. Time passing and blood flowing over if the If it thing. only did one, you would, you would get comfortable with that style. That's not what this movie does. This movie keeps you on your toes all the time. You don't know what's happening. No, it doesn't. This movie doesn't let itself breathe is the problem. You breathe. Fine. <laughs> and, but this, this is a moment where it's great. Ward shows up. Something is wrong with the water. My God, it might be contaminated. Yeah, he's like, don't drink the water. And Lavinia is clearly sick. And she's like, I believe you, bro. This water is gross. Then Ward goes over to the kid who's still looking at the well. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm talking to my friend. And you could tell Ward in that moment is like, I don't have kids. I don't know kids. This might be perfectly natural. I don't know. So he's just like, sure, kid. And okay. then walks away. Mm -hmm. Pretty great. And then he goes to Ezra's hut. Oh, yeah. This is a special scene. It is a special scene. So he's come to warn Ezra, and we're, we're going to do a little theater of cruelty. Theater of cinema of cruelty. So, all right. But Ezra is crouched on the floor, looking at some stones when <clears throat> Ward walks in. Ezra? Hey, make yourself comfortable, amigo. What the hell are you doing down there? I've been reorganizing. You want some java? Uh, no, thank you. That's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. I don't think you should be drinking that. I found something in the water. Just a trace, really. Uh, hey, where's G-Spot? <laughs> Who knows? Caterwauling, you know. Out there somewhere. Really haven't seen her since it all started. Since what all started? Shh. You can hear them down there. You could hear them while I slept. Shuffling around. Shattering. See, I knew no one would believe me unless I got it on Memorex. What exactly am I supposed to be listening to? The people under the floor, dude. The aliens. They're there. Uh, well, yeah, it's strange, but it's probably geothermal activity. No, 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 or no. magnetic distortion. They came on the rock. Yeah, look, no offense, Ezra, but that's pretty out there. <laughs> you don't get it, do ya? It's not out there. It's in here. It's in the static. It's in the moisture. Up is down. Fast is slow. What's in here is out there. What's out there is in here now. Comprendo? Uh, look, why don't you think about getting out of here for a while? I'm going to be back tomorrow. I'll have some more equipment with me. I'm sure it'll all make more sense in the morning. Morning? Dude, it's already morning. Uh, right. Stick to bottled water, okay? Oh, hey, I I'll let you know if I see G-Spot. You might see her, but I don't think you'll recognize her. Dun, dun, dun. And scene. One of my favorite things is he just assumes that this dude who's still recording things on Memorex <laughs> and crouch on the floor like has some sort of stash plethora of bottled water around somewhere. Because <laughs> he's like, stick to bottled water, okay? And you're like, I, yeah, do you really my... think this bitch has like a cache of bottled water somewhere? Like, where do you think this is coming? Yeah, my advice would have been, you know, boil your water first and then drink it. Like, that's, if you had bad well water, but no bottled water, you just, you boil the water first. Well, see, so like, once again, so now that we have this like, don't drink the water thing kind of circulating, 
this would have been a great time to bring back in those wine bottles because you have this store of wine bottles and if they don't have bottled water what if you have the family having to just tap into that and basically sustain on wine for a week and they're getting progressively drunk that would have been great missed opportunity but once again that setup just like doesn't come back around we don't ever see those wine bottles again all right so we have that interaction where like chung knows what's up and yeah he he speaks the truth and you're like you sound like a total crazy stoner i believe you yeah like exactly. i just believe him I, I love that war is like look man i'm gonna i'm gonna have some more equipment tomorrow ward this is a man who works with memorex he's not gonna be impressed by your science gear come on man yeah that memorex machine is beautiful i love that it's still there it's still going strong even though he's got these leaky roofs that the water's <laughs> pouring in but this machine is staying he, he always fixes the he doesn't worry about the leaks anywhere else in the house except for right above the memorex that is where he's dry as a bone he's yeah good. no that machine made me really happy cuts to nick cage singing opera in a car <laughs> <laughs> As all scenes must cut to, we must always get back to that. Uh, we get the one jump scare-ish moment of the entire movie where we we find G-Spot. Yeah. G-Spot don't want to be found. We do kind of recognize her, but we also kind of don't. Yeah, because G-Spot is without fur, her, she's just eyes and muscles and bones and teeth now. Something is, is very wrong with G-Spot, but that's the only time that we see her and off she goes. Poor G-Spot. Although... Another deviation is that usually in Lovecraft, the cats get away. Really? Because Lovecraft was a huge lover of cats. Aww. He was a cat owner. And in the short story, it, it does even mention that all the cats had previously run away from this area because they knew it was up. They were smart. They wow. got out. So, yeah, the cats lived. Nice to know there was a demographic H.P. Lovecraft actually liked. Hey, oh! Yeah, exactly. Wow. He liked cats. Ooh. He's not a big fan of anything else, but he like cats. The parents come home. Finally, the parents get home. Nicholas Cage is just, he's very upset that the calls wouldn't get through. Starts to do a voice that you and I are very familiar with. And we're like, what? What? Are we hearing a voice? That yes, we are. Yeah, very strange. Yes, very strange. we are. So he yells at Lavinia and Benny for letting Jack just be out there in the middle of the night staring at a well. And then he loses his shit. And this voice, so some context. In 1989, Nick Cage did a movie called Vampire's Kiss. It is the best Nick Cage film of all time, and everyone should see it. And in this movie, he plays a man named Peter Loeb, who is a publisher in New York City. It has some American Psycho vibes, to be sure, because it's filmed in the time period that American Psycho set. Mm -hmm. But he goes home with... Jennifer Beale from the club one night, and he becomes convinced after this one night stand that she was a vampire and that she has bitten him and he is turning into a vampire. The really great thing about this movie is that it makes it very clear that he is not turning into a vampire. He is just crazy. You're not watching a man go through some sort of metabolic change. You're watching a man go crazy. Yes. And the accent that Nick Cage chooses to use for Peter Loeb, even before he goes crazy, is a very specific voice that he hadn't previously ever used again until this moment. 
because it is an accent that doesn't quite exist in real life. And in commentaries for Vampire's Kiss, he's talked on how he made this voice up because Peter, within the space of the film, being a pretentious asshole that he was, is using a fake accent. <laughs> and so this is Peter Loeb's accent that the character affects in the movie. And he kind of slips in and out of it as he's going yeah. through his psychosis descent in Vampire's Kiss. He brings that voice back right here, right now. I uh, I pulled thirty some years later. I pulled a clip from Vampire's Kiss and a, and a clip from this movie. I'm gonna play them back to back now, so you can yeah. you get an idea. So this is from Vampire's Kiss. What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O P some choice moments from this movie. You know, I did everything I was supposed to do. I followed every fucking rule in the book. In the end, they still fucking taste like shit. So you know what? Fuck that. Nothing has been fucking this place up. Why are you so in denial? Okay, you know, I've had it with your drama, Lavinia. So do me a favor and get the fuck out of my sight, okay? No, no, actually, I'll save you the trouble and get the fuck out of yours. It's that little that little sting of like, yes, he does the very end that really sells it. But that accent always reminded me of someone trying to do kind of a transatlantic accent, almost Cary Grant-ish, but fucking it up completely. Yeah, it's it's really great. It's really spectacular in Vampire's Kiss. It's really spectacular here. And it solidifies for me the... Vampire's Kiss sequel theory in which I posit that Peter Loeb as a character living in New York City and going through his mass psychosis at the end when he tries to commit suicide by stake is taken and rehabilitated slightly at some sort of psychiatric institution. He is then later released and decides to get away from the city and move to his father's farm to buy a bunch of alpacas to try to resituate and quiet his mind. Um, because there's that conversation he has with his wife of, we, we got out of the city finally, you know, we're out here. And now this is Peter Loeb trying to live a new life. And yet the alien colors are now reinciting the madness. It makes sense. None of these kids are, I think the oldest one is what, maybe 18, 19, something like that. So yeah, you could easily say that these are all children he had post his New York life. Yeah, this was yeah, 10 years later from in the early 2000s, and now it's 2020, and he's living on a farm. I The science works out. <laughs> Nobody can tell me that this is not Peter Loeb. You can't prove her wrong, folks. You want to, but you can't. Believe me, I want to every time we talk. Back inside, we do what more movies should do, and that's give us a shower scene with Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Who's noticing he has, like, he's starting to have some skin problems. His skin is, like, a little scaly almost, looking like Yeah, old, he's still itching, and it's itching just drying up. There's uh, some evil gel in the shower drain. That's no good. I hate when that happens. Can't do yes, that. Yes, this is another moment where, oh my god, for a second, it's so, so good. Well, first of all, he, like, comes crashing into the room first to go take a shower, and it bumps into this lamp. And it's like, to be fair, like, what asshole put a lamp there? It's a very awkward place for a lamp. But then he gets into the shower... 
And this goop that he picks up from the drain is clear and gelatinous, and it's very thick. And so he looks at it like, this doesn't seem natural. And once again, it's uncanny and weird enough that that's all we needed. Mm -hmm. And that would have been weird. Kind of would have had that, is it weird, is it not? That lighthouse paradox, right? Of like, shit seems weird, but we can't confirm it. Only this little gelled disc is going to quickly grow some legs and grab onto his arm. And he's going to scream and drop it. And I was like, oh, you almost were there. And then you went too far. So he drops it down the drain and it disappears. Nick Cage freaks out about this. He's starting to lose it a little bit. And then he goes and he picks some tomatoes. We then go to Nicolas Cage outside picking the crops. He's super happy because the crops came a month early and they're really big and juicy looking. And that's every farmer, whatever farmer wants to see. He doesn't see the magenta mantis flying around, but, you know, he's just, he's too distracted by all the awesome fruit that he's grown. And he's like, yeah, I did it. I'm a farmer now. Goes inside to wash them off, takes a bite out of one of them, spits it out, takes a bite of another one, spits it out. It's just like a constant chomp. Poo, chomp, poo, chomp, poo. No one spits out fruit in quick succession like Nicolas Cage. Man uh, man knows what he's doing. Mom's upset because the internet's failing and she's losing clients. She comes down to start yelling at him, and his response is to just start chucking these tomatoes and peaches into the bin. It's really satisfying. He's just chucking them so hard. The scene ends, I love the way the scene ends, because she's just like, would you just please have a look at the internet dish? Take a look at it. And he's like throwing them in like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, sweetie. He'll do that. Okay. Yeah, just like all of a sudden that like switch again to complete pleasantness. Lavinia is packing to run away, but then she stops to read the nec- nec- necronomic, necro- the Necronomicon. The neck. What is it? The Necronomicon. No, 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 no. I think you're saying it wrong. If I say it three times, it, you know, it convokes the spirit. So I can't, I can't say it a third time. Those <laughs> are the rules, Ben. I Those can't say rules. it one time, so I think we're okay. Folkloric <laughs> ritual rules. Um, but yeah, so she's going to take out this copy. Um, this copy is the copy that is commercially available on Amazon and probably your local bookseller. It was Published as a mass paperback in 1977. Yeah, I remember seeing this book in high school. I'm like, oh, right. That's a real thing. Huh. How about that? Well, it is and it's not. So once again, Aww. it was never a real book when Lovecraft was writing about it. He created the Necronomicon for his writings. But then in 1977, we're going to get this thing called the Simon Necronomicon, where a version of the Necronomicon is going to become commercially available Produced by just a mysterious, anonymous editor, quote-unquote Simon. No last name. His little bio just described him as this great magical practitioner, or whatever. And yet, what this seemed to be, this book, it, it did a lot of the things that... I don't know if you've ever read The Princess Bride, but in The Princess Bride, the, the book mm-hmm. version, there's this really interesting pseudo-authenticity translation without an original thing going on where you have the narrator at the beginning saying that this is my favorite story although I've never read it it was only told to me and I finally got a copy of this book and I was able to translate it and give Mm -hmm. it to you audience like here's my favorite work and then um, the author of Princess Bride William Goldman throughout the text it's really kind of fun he as an Mm -hmm. author will insert himself with footnotes (laughs) 
of like, well, oh. Morgan Stern here says X, Y, and Z, because it does say William Goldman's translation of S. Morgan Stern's The Princess Bride. And of course, S. Morgan Stern no... doesn't exist. And so right. the, the original <laughs> text of The Princess Bride doesn't exist. And how we mm. really boost that is that we have this idea that, oh, it, it was told to me, right? I found this text. It kind of makes one respect the framing device in that movie, then. Yeah. As we should really probably do The Princess Bride and talk about the framing device at some point, because there's a <laughs> lot of really cool things about the adaptation of that movie from the book and what's happening there with pseudo-authenticity. But yeah. here we have that happening with Simon's Necronomicon, where he's going to use a very similar frame story, where he's going to talk about having found this text from this ancient sorcerer magic practitioner and that had gone crazy trying to translate it and so these were the notes that they were able to compile from this particular individual that had it before and then we're gonna get this collision potpourri of <laughs> stuff i guess in this grimoire where it's gonna be a little bit of ancient middle eastern traditions it's going to be some lovecraft stuff it's going to be some alistair crowley stuff it's going to be some enochian stuff like there, there's just a whole bunch of stuff just combined into text it's kind of a fun little collection and it seems like it could be some type of ancient grimoire because grimoires used to do this they used to just be this hodgepodge of whatever a magical practitioner could get their hands on and, and put in their little book and there was a lot of speculation as to who Simon might be. Nobody knew for a very long time. Nobody still officially knows. But there are suspicions that Simon might be a man named Peter Lavenda. And Peter Lavenda is a nonfiction author who studies the history of the occult. His most famous one is probably Unholy Alliance, which really looks at Nazi Germany's obsession with occultism and so that kind of yeah. underpinning of occultism remix that happened um, during the Third Reich. I, I don't know what made people suspicious of him initially, but it came up in interviews again and again, just asking Lavenda, like, so are you Simon? Like, did you do this, like, Necronomicon hoax? Like, is, <laughs> is, is this a joke that, that you're uh, putting on the world? And he's like, no, no, it's, it's not me. But then, thanks to the internet and the fact that we now have access to U.S. copyright patents and whatnot. It, <laughs> coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, the U.S. copyright for the Simon Necronomicon is under Peter Lavenda's name with the parentheses uh. pseudonym Simon. So we're pretty sure <laughs> that yeah. Peter, he, he still denies it, but we're pretty sure that Peter Lavenda is Simon. So yeah. The truth is always out there and it's often boring. No, I think this is actually great, right? Because we've got this <laughs> occult scholar that's like, must have been a fan and is like, yeah, I'm going to put together this Necronomicon because we don't have a Necronomicon and we need one. So he was the guy that knew all about grimoires. He's he's the scholar of grimoires. And so he makes one and he makes one under this mysterious but bland name and allows the Necronomicon to come into fruition in the 1970s. And this copy is still available in like a little mass market paperback and stuff. So it's fun. Once again, like Lovecraft just, you know, leaving little traces of his legacy throughout time and space. Oh, all right. Well, but she's using it now. Yeah. I was about to say, you say it's a book of rituals. Is what Lavinia is about to do a ritual in the book? Yes. Okay. Because Lavinia goes hard here. Well, I mean, the her starting to carve stuff into her skin is not a ritual in the book. Oh. Like, the the pages that are open and the way she's set up and the invoking of the Enochian archangels 
are all in the book and the sigils. I thought you were going to say, oh, she's not going hard here. I'm like, I think she's going pretty fucking hard here, London. No, no. I mean, like, you can find grimoires and stuff that talk about, like, cutting and bloodletting and whatnot. Outside, the weather is getting very magenta. There's a lot of magenta fog. Jack and Benny, they wander outside to see what's going on, and they there are some scary things happening in the barn. Mom's worried. She runs out to check on things. Mom runs into the barn to get Jack. Benny, you know, he runs away too. But they fall over and are zapped by a magenta vapor that does something to Mom and Jack. Starts infusing them together. Their forms absorb into one another. Yeah. So one comes out the other side because they're hugging. And so it just kind of, yeah, gelatinously... Yeah, them. this is, uh, like I said earlier, where we start to get into some Cronenberg body horror action. And there is something really fucked up about the, the notion of a mother reabsorbing her son, which is kind of what they insinuate is going on here. Yeah, well, not even insinuate, because later Lavinia will actually say, it's like she's trying to reabsorb him back into her body. And it's like, that's gross. Yeah. they take, Super gross. Yeah, kids take mom and Jack inside... Things are bad. Mom can't even speak. She can just moan and, like, cry out, but she can't say anything. They take the mother up to the attic once more, as the mother likes to be up there. You know? The mother-son gelatinous combo. I know. The attic. In my notes, I just kept writing out, like, them in quotation marks. <laughs> Nix takes them back to the house. They take them up to the attic. They scream. Yes. At some point, like, the same thing is going to happen to the alpacas. They're going to also congeal into mm. one big mass with multiple heads. And Nick Cage is going to grab his shotgun, and he's going to go out there, and he's just going to go Rambo on those alpacas and just shoot them all in the face. What's funny is that when I was watching this, I thought to myself, well, this seems a lot like, you know, The Thing, that John Carpenter movie from 1982, which, in my research, found out is based on a book that more or less just rips off H.P. Lovecraft already. So, you know, full yeah, circle. Yeah, no, The Thing is... Yeah, based off of the Lovecraft short story at the Mountains of Madness. Oh, okay. I thought it was based on a book that ripped off the Mountains of Madness. My bad. Whatever. Still. Um, well, I mean, like, yeah, that whole lineage of, like, uh. the thing, yeah, is based off of the Mountains of Madness. Okay. And there you go. So, yeah. This monster itself, at an effects level, looks really great. Oh, yeah. And especially the alpacas. There was in the behind-the-scenes making of footage of them building these puppets, the alpaca puppets. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful puppetry, way smaller than I expected it to be, actually, huh. on a scale level. These were actually miniature puppets really? that they then huh. filmed with lipstick cams to make it look big. But, yeah, these uh, these little alpacas were, like, the size of a Blue Yeti microphone. All right. Well. So they're, they're tiny and in, in this little barn, but really gorgeous. And they, they all get shot. Yes. And after Nicolas Cage shoots them, he goes upstairs to see his wife and tells the kids, like, just get out of here. I got to do something. And the kids are scared, like, oh, God, uh, what's going to happen now? And you think he's about to, quote, unquote, put them out of their misery, in, yeah, so to speak. He's like, I got to take care of something. And Livy is like, like, you did the alpacas. He's like, yeah. Pretty so much. Leave. But no, he does not. He puts the gun right to the mother's forehead and then stops. Instead, leans down kisses her it's gooey and gross because this woman's body is decaying yeah in ways. But then he goes back in for a second one oh, yeah. and then a third and he's like you're still my golden lady and you're like yeah nick cage she was worried about the fact that he wouldn't like her now that she might have some slight 
mastectomy scars or whatever and he's like nah i still think you're beautiful and i'm like i think he just proved it man yeah (laughs) (laughs) granted he's also going nuts but you know this insanity dissension nick cage he, he still loves you in town we see ward some locals show him something that came from the gardener place and it appears to be the pieces of the alpaca well, it actually, because I was confused by that too the first time, because I was like, how in the world did they get the alpaca mound from the barn without like interacting with the others? But no, this apparently is a different mass of animals that are like rabbits and deer oh, and cats and stuff okay. that had like run to a different part of the property, also got like kind of mounded and then died and flopped their skin and stuff off. But yeah, this is another moment of like, Hey, hydrologist, can you come look at this mount of dead animals? Man of <laughs> He's science, out of the come courthouse. look at this and give us answers, please. Yeah, it's a sheriff and like roadkill hunter or whatever. Like, hey, man, come over here and look at this because you're a hydrologist. <laughs> and once again, without missing it, he's like, wow, these look like radiation burns or whatever. And you're like, thanks, right. hydrologist. We get back to the house, the farm. The mm-hmm. well is going to eat Benny. Cage is going to lock Lavinia in the attic. Feed um, your mother. And then Cage is just going to go be Cage in the living room. He's going to be pacing around. He's going to be talking to people who aren't there. He's watching movies. He's having a grand old oh, time. Oh, God, yeah. And some Pete Cage stuff. <laughs> and then Ward, having seen this wad of animals, is like, well, maybe we should go out and check on them because mm-hmm. this shit looks serious. And so him and the sheriff are going to go, and he's going to knock on the door. Cage answers. He's like, oh, hey. It's like, yeah, we just thought we'd come and check on you. Oh, man, that's really nice. We've been having a hard time, you know, life in the sticks or whatever. (laughs) And you're like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He's just scratched himself all the time. And they ask, where's your wife at? Um, You know, Nathan. Wife, she's right there, points at empty couch. And they do maintain one of my favorite moments from the short story where they ask where his son is. And he just dismissively is like, oh, he lives in the well now. Yeah, there aren't many quotes from the short story. The short story is mostly prose, but there are a few quotes in it. Um, Well, I mean, just like quote as in directly lifting text from Mm -hmm. the the story, whether it's verbal or not, whether it's speech or not. Yeah, because in the story, like, we have no idea so far what's happened to the son. So when you just get this drop of, like, he lives in the well now, you're like, shit, man. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) We should probably investigate that. This we've seen him go into the well, so it's not as effective. But yeah, I do like that they kept the he lives in the well now. Very good. Upstairs, the monster's getting ready to eat. The hydrologist's like, that's not good. So we should probably go check on people. Mommy monster is about ready to eat Lavinia. They burst in there. They shoot that monster in the face. Nick Cage gets shot at some point. Like, chaos erupts and ensues. It's it's all the craziness. The wells, it's grabbing at things around them. I think they go to Ezra's cabin at one point and find Ezra's corpse, but his voice is on the Memorex, talking yes. about how, how things are decaying and how it's all getting inside of them. And this is another scene that actually is very effective. They come into Ezra's. The purple color is taken over the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. They see him from behind, and we hear his voice in this garbled, uncanny speech that we learn is coming out of the Memorex because they pan around him, and he is clearly a dead corpse sitting there. The speech that Ezra delivers here is, 
mostly the same speech that Nathan's character, Nick Cage's character in the short story, yeah. is the one to give to Ami Pierce, although they change it a little bit too. So it starts out the same speech, but then they kind of change it towards the end. I do love the line of, it's just a color, but it burns. I don't think that's actually a quote from the actual short story. That did not resonate with me, but I loved that sentence that uh, Tommy Chung gets to deliver here on the Memorex. And Chung's also slightly moving. His corpse is moving slightly because the color is just sort of flushing from under his skin. Mm -hmm. This was, yeah, this scene was a little bit more the kind of vibe that I wanted this movie to have. Just that slightly creepy, uncanny otherness without going too above. Like, they kept this one reined in and it was great. But then, of course, once again, they have that really great moment and then they ruin it by going outside of Ezra's cabin and the sheriff just gets snatched up by, like, a killer tree. Killer tree! And I was like, this is not Evil Dead, man. Like, you don't have killer trees right now. Like, <laughs> I didn't think of that, let too. the sheriff go, put him down. Mm -hmm. Ward makes a run for it, gets back to the house, finds Lavinia at the well. He tries to talk to her. She turns around. Her eyes and her skin are glowing at this point. And now Ward is suddenly given a vision that is of something that is definitely not in the short story. No, not at all. So... They seem, she seems to like travel him to another one of the extraterrestrial lands where this color has come from. It looks like one of the realms per se. It's hard to fully pinpoint which Lovecraftian realm they're referencing because Lovecraft was very careful not to hyper-visualize his realm. So mm -hmm. which one is kind of a squirmy worm realm is. There are a couple of them that could fit. There are some theories here. It doesn't matter because, once again, Color Out of Space very deliberately did not want you to know where it came from. So, yeah, they, they try to tie it into this larger Cthulhu mythos, as people like to say. And then she disappears, or not disappears, but gets kind of, you know, exploded by the light. She comes down with a very bad case of explosions, and it's yeah. it's, it's fatal. Yeah, that's, He goes uh, running into the house, and Nathan, who is suddenly sitting up on this chair and is just projecting all of the voices of his family. Mm -hmm. And there's this great Ward moment where he sees him and his reaction is, you're dead, Nathan. <laughs> like Somehow he could convince Nathan to chill out because oh, he like, had forgotten yeah. that he was dead or something. Oh, my but bad. it was, it was a great reaction. That. Also, yeah, this kind of resurrection of the family sitting mm. on the couch, like time is collapsing. Another thing not in the short story, yeah. so not sure where this is coming from. Nick Cage begins to move at him, and like matter itself seems to smear in space at this point, because things are just getting really fucked up in a material way. He runs down to the wine cellar to get away. Back to Chekhov's wine cellar, like we mentioned earlier, it's there, we know about it, so great. Nicholas Cage can't seem to open the door to the wine cellar, so Ward is safe in there for the time being. And then the world just begins to disintegrate. Yeah, I mean, everything kind of shakes and vibrates. The magenta, purple, and whatever light takes over. The high-frequency pitches are going, and everybody seems to just evaporate with it. And the screen gives us this gray pink out that slowly fades into a bright white and then we get the arm of the hydrologist he has lived and he's crawling his way out from the cellar into this bleached blight landscape of ash and white and gray like there's no color here that remains and that also is a cool visual effect mm -hmm. 
for I sure. think the short story refers to this like as the land afterwards as the the blasted heath or something like that. Yes, which also is in the short story, but a reference to Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, okay, All right, very yes. nice. But it describes it as just this ashen valley that the wind never seems to pick up the ash; like it just remains this square mile of soot. Yeah, we have this semi-epilogue dam speech. Where he stands in the, the dam, now built, sometime later, and he hopes the water is very deep and covers up whatever was down there, but he will never drink the water. And yeah. uh, it was just a color out of space, a messenger that they cannot comprehend. That only a few people remember the weird times. From six like, months ago. Yeah, I'm like, but... <laughs> so once again, like we have this opening and closing with voiceovers from H.P. Lovecraft's work. Um, they also change it up a little bit for the outro here because the actual outro doesn't fit or fits even less than the one that they use here because of the the temporal relations of the story, which gets to here shortly. But it is just really weird to have this intro outro because it makes it seem like the story happened a long time ago, only it didn't. <laughs> So you're like, what do you mean? Like, you're the only one who remembers. I mean, I guess in this capacity, in the movie, it's mostly because, like, he seems to be the only one that survived. So maybe he's the only one who remembers. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, this this passage of time doesn't quite work when you're trying to tell this story in a contemporary <laughs> way. No, no, it does not. And anyway, so, that's The Color Out of Space. That is The Color Out of Space. Written and directed by one Richard Stanley. This is the newest movie that I think we've ever done. Yeah, it's very recent. Because this came out, I think this came out, I think it was like, had a, a limited release in late 2019. And then I think it was in more theaters in early, like February or January of 2020. So, yeah. 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 So we'll have to do something old school next week since we've done Midsummer and... Color Out of Space, two contemporary uh, weird movies right in a row. We'll, we'll take it back to the classic. Gotta go back. Time. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what is this short story all about? Okay, so this short story is a really great, great story by H.P. Lovecraft. It's one of his more atmospheric ones, I would say. I mean, a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stuff is atmospheric, so I shouldn't actually classify this one as one of the more for sure yeah i found the short story myself i had never read anything by hp lovecraft and after reading this i'm like okay yeah i get it not bad and he paints a, a very creepy picture for you it's uh, well done yeah and so this was published in march of 1927 in the amazing stories publication number two two um it's actually number six of amazing stories too mm -hmm. but the thing with hp lovecraft is that most people have an association with lovecraft's work by the pop culture association with lovecraft so there are a lot of people afterwards that would reinterpret his work that would add to the canon sort of with what happened with sherlock holmes where you had the initial doyle stuff and then other authors would write about sherlock holmes so other authors have written with Lovecraft's characters and Lovecraft's worlds. So people often get the later work mixed up with his and whatnot. And the mythos of the old gods and the Cthulhu kind of stuff as being this tentacle 
squid monster or whatever kind of are the biggest pop culture associations with Lovecraft. But in terms of the Cthulhu stuff, that's actually a very small part of his writings. Most of his writings deal more in the realm of just weird fiction. Like strange shit happens in these spindly tree overcast <laughs> New England forests in the city of Arkham, often with the this kind of occult vibe, and often in a way in which people later on can't confirm whether they happened or not. And so it is really hard to adapt Lovecraft in general because Lovecraft, as we mentioned before, was really big on unseen horrors. That he was a part of the horror belief system that shit is way scarier when you can't see it or when you can't fathom it. Mm -hmm. And so it was very important to him that you never visualize anything. Almost kind of reminds me of certain world religions that have this idea that you can't paint a picture depicting God or the gods, whatever the pantheon might be, because it's sort of sacrilegious. And Lovecraft sort of approached that with his elder gods. Like, you weren't supposed to ever visualize them. One, because the human mind wasn't supposed to be able to visualize them and stay sane. And then two, there's just, yeah, no way to visualize it properly. So it was sacrilegious to try. And those are two very important tenets. So really, the moment you put a monster in Lovecraft, like, you are actually creating kind of like this high treason moment against (laughs) the Lovecraftian wishes, which, once again, whatever, like, it's in the public domain, like, do what you want. But there is this tendency to put monsters, like, visible monsters into Lovecraft adaptations, especially in stories where there are no monsters to begin with. Color Out of Space is very much one of those, because the only threat in color out of space is the color like there are no monsters that appear and or are created throughout the process of this short story and the other important thing is that's going to happen is like the time period that the short story takes place in so we have a surveyor in the short story that is coming to the area 44 years after the occurrence of the color (laughs) descending into the atmosphere And the surveyor comes across a patch of land out in the outskirts of the Arkham Woods that is blighted. It's gray. Nothing has grown. Everything is ash. The town mayor wants him to survey the land to possibly build kind of a a big water reservoir dam there because there's this land that nobody's doing anything with, right? So that makes sense in the story and the way it does it in the movie because you're like, but these people are living here. How do they know like that they're... Land's going to get turned into water. In the story, it's because, like, they're long since dead, and this land is just sitting there, and it's a big piece of property. And so, yeah, let's let's turn it into a reservoir. So he goes out, and he's like, but what happened here, right? Stuff doesn't look natural. And there's one lone dude who kind of seems like maybe he's our Ezra. Or Ezra's That's what sort I was thinking substitute. when I was reading. I'm like, this is kind of the Ezra character. Not quite, but I think it's, like, the closest thing that Ezra's yeah, character comes to uh, from the movie, really, to the book. Yeah, it's definitely the closest because it's a man named Ami Pierce, and he still lives in the area. He's the only one that still lives in the area, and it's marked because he possibly is the one that lives closest to the main road. So he's just close enough to civilization to possibly stay safe. He's described as like a he was a neighbor to uh, Nahum Gardner as opposed to Nathan Gardner. Yeah, Ami Pierce and his wife were in the neighboring farmhouse. 
And one day, this meteorite is going to come and it's going to crash and lands in the Gardner property. And that, that all tracks, right? It's a weird sort of meteorite. When they call the authorities out the first time, it is still there. And these scientists are going to take pieces of it back to their lab and they're going to study it. They are going to determine that possibly it's a new element, but it's not an element they've ever seen before. It's not a color they've ever seen before. It behaves very strangely when they put it with stuff. Not even Aqua Regina will dissolve it or do anything to it. And yet somehow it seems to erode on its own. It also stays very, very hot. The best way to think about this in the story is almost in the way that radiation works. Now, I'm not going to say that this is an, an allegory for radiation because people are very quick often to put allegory or allegorical readings on Lovecraft stuff where they shouldn't necessarily because Lovecraft really was just trying to come up with some original shit that happened to have some stuff in common, usually in his writings. But this does behave very similarly to radiation where it continues to burn hot, it has its own half-life, and eventually it's going to dissolve. And also like radiation, this shit is going to seep into the soil. It's going to affect the crops that are growing on the Gardner farms. It's going to affect the water. And yet it's going to take a very long time to do this. So also when I mentioned earlier, like this did not slow burn enough. What I love about Lovecraft in general and the color out of space in specifics is that it takes its time, that it is a slow creeping horror because Lovecraft's all about that slow creeping invisible horror. Also, kind of like we, similar to the Lord of the Rings adaptation, where you kind of for film need Frodo to get a hold of that ring, and then he needs to get out of that Shire ASAP. Whereas in the book, like yeah, you know, he hangs around the Shire for another thirty years. Yeah, it's like that here, where the meteor lands, and it takes a full year for anything to really start happening. Yeah, I was gonna say the short story, from what I could tell, takes place over two years, as opposed yeah. to a, a week that I think the movie seems to go over. It's a slow process because it gets into the soil and what it's doing is it's slowly poisoning the atmosphere and it's slowly poisoning the people who are systematically encountering it and interacting with it. So the ones who are drinking the well water over and over and over again are slowly having their mind eroded. And so the little things like the itching skin is great, like some weird gelled plant life is totally acceptable you'll start having these folklore moments where kids that or hunters that go into the woods encounter animals that just don't seem quite right. They're not magenta, we don't get bug vision, but we do get this idea that even the animal life and sort of the folklore that evolved outside of Chernobyl in the aftermath of Chernobyl, that you had these mutant fish that were in the sea or whatever. It's like just little differences had been marked, but the city folk didn't really believe. These were just the folk tales of the rustics, as they're called in the short story. And at some point, the wife seems to be acting strangely in terms of she's getting clumsier and she's getting more and more forgetful. The husband is going to start getting worried about her and he's going to lock her in the attic in this very uncomfortable way where he just keeps the wife locked up in the attic. And then his son is going to follow suit. And so for his safety, he locks him up in the attic in a different room. And you have this like very uncomfortable, like kind of patriarchal thing happening. Slowly, the only people the townsfolk and Amani Pierce, the neighbor, get to interact with is Nahum or Nathan coming to pop by and tell his tale. So we're getting this from the surveyor's perspective and we're getting it from Amani Pierce's perspective 
because the surveyor is just getting this tale from Pierce. I was thinking a lot of the Grand Budapest Hotel while reading this because it has that same kind of framing device within a framing device thing going on. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, story within a story, but that's also the nature of this folklore where it's kind of these tales passed down, so we're not entirely sure, right, like what's right and what's wrong. And Pierce will mention like, okay, so I did notice this slow deterioration in my friends and I told him you shouldn't drink the water, but at some point he did it anyway. There's actually a little paragraph that I think kind of captures this like mundaneness really well. Will you read it? Will you read the paragraph that captures the mundaneness? Ami advised his friend to dig another well on higher ground to use till the soil was good again. Naaman, however, ignored the warning, for he had by that time become callous to strange and unpleasant things. He and the boys continued to use the tainted supply, drinking it as listlessly and mechanically as they ate their meager and ill-cooked meals, and did their thankless and monotonous chores through their aimless days. There was something of a stolid resignation about them all, as if they walked half in another world between lines of nameless guards to a certain and familiar doom. So there's just this idea that they're like, yeah, this is probably fucking with us, but like they (laughs) had lost the will to care, right? They were just doing these mundane stuff. and. At some point, Naaman's going to show up and say, like, yeah, so my son's dead. He went out somewhere and he hasn't come back and we found this congealed bit of lantern. So, yeah, he's probably gone. And Ami's like, wait, what? Because that, that's not normal. And uh, <laughs> Naaman's like, no, nah, it's, it's fine, though. And he's like, um, OK. And then later, like, Naaman comes back again and is like, yeah, so my other son's dead. He's, he's not around anymore. And... Ami's getting increasingly concerned about this. And so when he doesn't see Naaman for a while, he goes back to investigate. And so far, us as readers going along with the surveyor, all we know is that these guys seem to have been getting sicker and weirder. Wife's been locked in the attic and like these boys have possibly disappeared. So when Ami tells the story of getting there to see like the unfolding horror, Naaman is in the living room and it's freezing And he's laying on the couch, and he seems to be talking to his son to put on another log on the fire. The son's not there. There's no fire going. And so Ami kind of concludes, like, wait a second. Like, dude's gone crazy. And he's like, so uh, where's where's your son? He's like, oh, he lives in the well now. You're like, the fuck, right? Because as a reader, you're like, you you drowned in a well? Like, what? And then he's like, well, where's your wife? And he's like, oh, yeah, she's upstairs. Like, you you might want to check on her. I haven't fed her in a while. You're like, holy shit. So, like, he goes on upstairs and he opens the door. He finds the keys. He opens the door. And what he finds inside, he cannot describe. Although we get the sense that it's like a brittle, um, because what's happened to all the livestock up until then is their bones have turned brittle and then Mm. they've just been dry and kind of crumbled. And so it describes briefly, like, the crumbling body that still kind of moved even as it crumbled. I love that. He just says, like, yeah, it it could only move and crumble, like the thing he saw in the attic that was apparently like, this guy's wife at some point. And you're like, all right, shit. And so then it looks like he might, yeah, beat it to death to be merciful or whatever, and then kind of comes out and he's like, so, yeah, your wife that you starved and then turned into brittle dust. Uh, yeah, that that was a fun time some point yeah like Naaman does get shot because he's going crazy they get the sheriffs out there and the examiners and Ami mentions yeah well he said his son was in the well and they're like well we should investigate this so there's a paragraph just talking about like dragging the sledge up or the sludge like bucket by bucket and as it's getting lower into the well the the water's getting sludgier and grosser and has like human hair and bones and stuff and like 
dump it out onto the ground. And eventually, they find the boys, but it even directly mentions, we do not need to speak of what was in the well. There are two boys that end up, but so-and-so and so-and-so were there in part. <laughs> and then, so, like, it's this is just like omission of like details, but it's like, yeah, they were in the well. And it gets to this point where the investigators who have not been exposed to this long term, they're not getting snatched up by trees. It's just this environment is poisoned and everything kind of goes gray at some point. Like everything's turning into this brittle dust and they all go home. And the ending also is once again, the surveyor saying like, okay, well, this dam is going to be built on this property, but I definitely wouldn't drink the water here. And there's more resonance there, right? Because it's not some crazy monster mash that's unfolded and you're like, well, I mean, that probably isn't going to happen. But the idea of this land is poisoned with something akin to radiation that is going to slowly poison the population over time is a very chilling, weird thought. And the way that it ends is also really chilling because he worries about Ami and this idea of, well, why has Ami not actually moved away? Why has he never been able to move away? And how clearly he recalled those dying words of Naaman, can't get away, it draws you in, something coming, but it ain't no use. Ami's such a good old man. When the Reservoir Gang gets to work, I must write the chief engineer to keep a sharp watch on him. I would hate to think of him as the gray, twisted, brittle monstrosity, which persists more and more in troubling my sleep. Why that's a really great haunting end is we got this idea that maybe Ami is also slowly being poisoned by the environment and is already haunted and stuck in and now maybe the surveyor too he's starting to dream right and mm -hmm. that's how it begins and so he too has possibly been poisoned and he doesn't know he's not aware of the fact that this is already seeping into him because it's from his perspective and from his perspective he's not crazy so there's just this like very subtle scope like we should never have these Aliens that, yeah, have little feet and turn into gelatinous alpaca hybrids. Like, it's, you're being slowly poisoned by your environment, and there's no way to fully know whether or not you're also being poisoned. And that is the horror, right? The horror isn't, like, the jump scare of monstrous alpacas. So it was unfortunate to me that, and I, I'm wondering too, in terms of like, would this movie have worked on its own if I was not expecting it to be an adaptation of a really great, slow, subtle building, creeping horror Lovecraft story? And I'm still not sure that it would, because I still think that even on its own merit, it doesn't give itself time to breathe. And you have, you have Nick Cage here. You have some really cool lighting. They could have just given the chance for Nick Cage to just progressively get crazier. That's all you needed. They felt kind of almost like something needed to happen every single moment. So the performances of the actors were overshadowed by this like magenta bug vision and screaming alpacas. And I'm like, no, like just, just tell the story, right? Like let the actors do their job. I had a different take on it. Having read the short story and watching the movie, my thought was that, okay, if you have to adapt this and you want to do it as a commercially viable movie, which sadly has to be done more often than not, this is probably one of the better ways to be doing this. As I was reading the short story, I thought to myself, okay, if they were going to do this framework within a framework thing, I think a lesser director would have 
said, okay, we are going to jump back 40 years, but we're not going to jump back from 1923 to, to 1882. We're going to jump from 2019 back to 1982, and we're going to get just more tired 80s nostalgia stuff that's while I enjoyed in Stranger Things, it's starting to get a little old that everyone is doing 80s nostalgia stuff still to this day. Oh my God, you've actually reached an 80s saturation point? I think Never I'm getting there. Today. And it's terrifying, too, because that just means that now we're going to get a bunch of 90s nostalgia stuff, and nobody wants to do that because no one wants to revisit the 90s. We can't... I do. I, I don't... <laughs> oh, the yesteryear, the days of the boy bands. Like, no, no, let's not revisit that. That's terrible. Good Lord. But I enjoyed the choice to, instead of looking back on it, that our narrator is an active character in the story. I liked that. I agree that there could have been a more atmospheric approach to this more in line with the vibe that you get from H.P. Lovecraft's work. But I do get the feeling that Richard Stanley may have been under some pressure from producers or maybe just wanting to make something that they knew they could make some money back on, wanting to make something that was more exciting. And, you know, it's a popcorn movie that you can really pack some crazy stuff into a trailer or show it to people. And they say, oh, I want to know what the fuck that's all about. Nicolas Cage is acting crazy, and I think there's like a a Thing-style alpaca monster in this movie. And what? H.P. Lovecraft? I've heard that name before, I think. Sure. And also, it was Richard Stanley's first movie in a very long time. I mean, he made a few films in the early 90s, was famously fired from the Island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, There's a whole documentary about that, and like, Really, you watch that documentary, you think to yourself, wow, this guy had some really interesting ideas and didn't get to fall through on them. Oh, yeah, his pitches for movies are great. No, I mean, I like Richard Stanley as a director, like Hardware's super fun, Dust Devil's super fun. Although he did apparently direct some movie that now I do want to see in 2011 called Theater of the Bazaars. That seems like a theater of cruelty type of thing right there. And all of his films do have something in common, which is generally a mundane space gets invaded by something supernatural and all shit goes, you know, to hell. So he seemed like a prime candidate. Mm -hmm. In the making of Featurette, this was the thing that kind of broke my heart a little bit because I'm like, guys, I I can see that you tried. You fragile Um, hearts. You have these producers that were talking about how it's super hard to adapt a Lovecraft story and nobody's ever done it right. And I was like, well, I agree with you there. And I was like, but unfortunately, you're also on that list. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying really hard. They were talking about how they really wanted to find and film. This production company wanted to produce an accurate as possible Lovecraft story. And then they found that Stanley had a script that he had written and they got a hold of it. And they're like, yes, this is it. This is what we need to do. And so they got him involved. So it actually wasn't meant to be a popcorn movie. It was meant to be an authentic Uh, representation uh of a Lovecraft thing by their own words. And I was like, well, that's depressing because on the one hand, you've endeared yourself to me because you tried, but like you didn't do it. But they came so close in so many ways. They just, yeah, I think either felt the pressure to go too big or because Stanley's the type of director that he is, like he is self-admittedly like a lover of those like, kind of Henson puppets and monster stuff. Like mm-hmm. he is a monster movie dude. Sure, yeah. I feel like I enjoyed this movie a lot more than you just because I did not have, I don't have an attachment to H.P. Lovecraft in the same way that you do. And I think that's just true of my approach to enjoying adaptations in general. Like I always know that transferring literary medium to cinema medium, there's just always going to be changes And there's also 
just the financial aspect to worry about every single time that will bog things down unless you're willing to invest and possibly lose millions of dollars into an art project we're not really going to see that terribly often i agree it would be kind of cool to see what you're talking about there i mean i've always thought it would be fascinating to have a you know a hundred hour tv series based on lord of the rings that's mostly just the hobbits walking around in a very ethereal land called middle earth and once every 20 episodes something exciting happens and it's a, the slowest burn possible but Filming that is impossible. It's not, though, because movies like The Witch and The Lighthouse and, like, Babadook, like, we have a series of really well critically acclaimed and well-audience-received subtle horror movies. So there is a market for that, right? Like, it can be done. And this was not a major blockbuster-marketed film. This was something that got released in independent theaters primarily. So this is something that... Yeah, like could have been done subtly and marketed. I agree that part of my frustration comes from expectation in a certain way, but also on its own merit, I feel like had so much potential that would have been something completely different from Lovecraft, but like would have been good on its own, where they had these setups of, okay, you have the mother that has cancer, like awesome, carry that through, right? Like instead of having her turn into some sort of like mutated monster that never really gets to do anything. Maybe she starts getting sicker and sicker. And at first they're like, no, it's just the cancer coming back. And she's like, no, this is different. This is something else. And then you get the daughter who's really interested in the Necronomicon witch tradition. Awesome. Use her to start researching the different stuff that might be coming on from a supernatural level because she's more open to it. You've got the son who's really into astronomy. Make him start becoming obsessed with the stars. Bring his astronomy knowledge in to work on that. You've got the father that's possibly an alcoholic. Let's play around with that boundary in terms of as he's escalating, are these violent outbursts that are first taken just as these drunken outbursts? Then we see, no, something else is going on here, right? So they started the, with the setup and then they just didn't follow it through. Mm -hmm. How I actually would have loved to see this movie been done differently, what I think would have saved it in a very different way you don't have to have, yeah, the flashback. I would have made the surveyor the main character and I would have kept him the main character. So what if we get this entire thing like through his perspective all the way through, like the intro and the outro sets up where the primary story is both him trying to get this like damn done with a bunch of, you know, like Arkham politics going on and possibly some very specific story that's unique to him. It's like, don't look now style. Then he keeps interacting with this family that seems to be slowly deteriorating and eventually leads to him having to go back to that house and getting that unveiling horror. Because that's the thing that like kind of works on the horror is that that reveal of the unknown and we need that mundanity. And he also was just a very captivating possible character to anchor it. Or, yeah, like I said, just give this family something else to do meanwhile as they're kind of unwrapped. Probably that why, you know, that response of like, well, when does the plot start? And it's like, well, <laughs> not all films need to, you know, have that three-act structure. But I think that's the problem is that it wasn't even a progression of monstrosity. It was just they got sick and everything kept going up and down monstrosity-wise. And there was no, there was no carry-through. There was no central idea. They introduced a lot of potential metaphors that never went anywhere. And there was no escalation even on a monster film level. So yeah, I, they were trying to do too much. They needed some sort of anchor. And I just don't think they quite succeeded at finding. 
And so it just made it a little bit disjointed to watch because it tried to present itself as like an unfolding series of escalating events, but it actually didn't have that tempo. I don't know. Yeah. So I was like, it was so close to me, but for me, but not, not quite on its individual level. I do agree that you could have done more with the setups these characters are given. They are addressed minimally later on. Like the mother who had cancer is given that very odd insult from Nicolas Cage where he says, it smells like a cancer ward. You should remember what that smells like. Like, oh, dude, the daughter doing witchcraft is revisited in one scene where she reads the Necronomicon, cuts herself, but the act of cutting herself really doesn't feed into anything else later on aside from I think at the very end of the movie where she is giving Ward the vision of the alien planet her scars her self-inflicted scars in her forehead begin to light up and you know match patterns that are seen on the alien world but again it's very minimal revisitations of all of those things so yeah this short story has had attempts to adapt it many, uh, many a time. Thinking ahead for me. All right. People Good deal. keep just trying to adapt these films. What are some of the ways that this film has been adapted? So the first attempt at an adaptation of this was done in 1965, and it was a movie called Die, Monster, Die. So, like, we have you saying, like, there aren't really monsters in H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, no, here, they're in the goddamn title of the thing. Die, monster, yeah. die. And it's, first of all, Nicolas Cage's character in this 1965 version is played by Boris, Boris fucking Karloff. Yeah, Frankenstein himself is in this thing. And he's more of a mad scientist who takes a meteor that falls from space and uses it to create monsters to terrorize people with. So it's like, you know, we talk about this movie like being a little off from the short story. Die, monster, die, really way fucking off in a big, bad way. I actually saw Die, Monster, Die way back in the day. Did not even realize it was supposed to be an adaptation right. of Color Out of Space. So. Exactly. Yeah, until I was looking stuff up for this, and I was like, wait a second. Like, so, that was supposed to be an adaptation? Yeah, All right. you have that. And then in 1987, there is another movie that I was hoping you didn't know about because I wanted it to fucking shock <laughs> you so badly with the trailer to this thing. I'll explain more, but I'm just going to play a snippet of the trailer for everyone. Just, you might hear a familiar name pop up here. He saw it. Something came out of the sky. A meteor or something. No one believed it. Now, there's no way to stop. The curse. It has come from the heavens. But what it has brought is hell. Will Wheaton of Stand By Me must stand alone against the curse. A film by David Keith from a story by H.P. Lovecraft. That's right. The one, the only, David Keith directed that thing. Can you believe that? Man, that, no, of course. I'm, I'm referring to Will Wheaton, uh, clearly pre-Star Trek and all that he was from known for the time. stand by me, must that, stand alone. <laughs> good. Someone who wrote the copy for that ad was patting themselves in the back that day like, oh, oh my God, so I good. fucking got this, man. He was in Stand By Me, but follow me here, guys. He has to stand alone. And from what I can tell, the movie is, it's its another monster movie, uh, but it's like typical 80s horror where it's, you know, a monster that's just in the shadows a whole lot. I was reading the synopsis on Wikipedia. 
And there's a bit where it says that Nathan or yeah, Nathan Gardner's wife sneaks off to have sex with a guy who like lives nearby, and that's when the meteor ends. So it seems like we're getting those tropes of from 80s films of sex equals things gotta die. Sex equals the invitational invasion of alien infested meteorites. Basically, yeah. The farmer, Nathan, seems to believe that everything bad happening is God's punishment for his wife's infidelity. So, yeah. Weird movie, and That's I'm... definitely not in the Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> Although, the thing that I really like love about like the Will Wayne stand by me, every time I like hear that trailer, I just think of his introduction in the Big Bang Theory as, oh. and that one kid from Stand By Me that nobody remembers. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> he's the one dude, but apparently oh. in this trailer, like he gets to claim his Stand By Me title once again. Oh, oddly, it had like three sequels. It had there was the Curse, the Curse Two colon the Bite, Curse Three Blood Sacrifice, and I. Th- I think there was like a fourth one that was unrelated to it but got renamed kind of in the same style as like eight millimeter two yeah so. oh my god we should do critters that's what we should oh. do next week talk about some classic old oh. school just like ridiculous i don't know if my critters movie doesn't have leonardo dicaprio in it i don't know what the point is well honestly. we can just have some bonus critters three thrown in there too but oh so, yeah uh, I mean, Gremlins is also an option, but yeah. Critters is the superior. So, yeah, you have those, like, yeah, this movie from the 60s, movie from the 80s, and then in the 2000s, uh, there were two movies, like, made a year apart, uh, like, two years apart from each other. One was called Color from the Dark, which, from what I can tell... Is that the was, Italian one? It was an Italian film, and the trailer was cut in ways that's trying to hide the fact that it's a, an Italian film, because you don't get much dialogue. It's all interstitial stuff coming up like titles being thrown at the screen to describe you know a meteor fell and then bad things began to happen but from what i could tell it's like a lot of very young people running around being scared by things so not so much the one that fascinated me that i couldn't find too much on was a german film uh, that was called the color out of space but like the german title was just die farbe which, the color. Yeah, the color, which I guess Die Farbe aus dem Raum uh, would have been too weird of a title for a German movie. Yeah, no, it's just called The Color. Yeah, The Color. And the trailer, I think we both found the trailer to this, right? Yes, like, I actually started watching this movie. Oh, did? Okay. I'm about halfway through. What's it available on? Is it streaming somewhere? Um, So it's actually streaming on Tubi. Oh, Tubi! Apparently... Okay, great! Um, so yeah, it is on Tubi. And it's... The trailer, I saw that, I'm like, I kind of want to see this because it looks like it's like an indie film dripping with German fatalism. What is this thing? Yeah, actually, it's it has some stuff going for it. So I actually would recommend if any Color Out of Space adaptation was to be watched so far, I would recommend this one. Like I said, I haven't gotten all the way through it yet because I found it late last night. And I was like, yes, I found a copy. But... It's told in an interesting frame story where you have a boy who is looking for his father, who at one point went to Germany to serve some time in the war or something like that, and disappeared. And he's been looking for him. And he goes out and he finds that there's this 
old dude who still lives in the house of the last known location of his father and or not in the house but the next door neighbor of that house farmland whatever and we get that recounting and this kind of flashback and stuff so it is the closest adaptation in terms of like the narrative and why i actually really enjoy it so far not even just on a lovecraft thing because i wouldn't say they're fully capturing the complete lovecraft tone either but i think with more money they could have Hmm. with a higher budget and just actual film equipment because the Uh, thing that's fascinating is that it does look like it's shot on some sort of handheld digital camera (laughs) but then transferred into black and white and the quality of these shots go drastically back and forth that when they're filming the actors they don't quite get that depth of field so it's just like it looks very flat Mm -hmm. you know in the way that a lot of those just kind of like cheap cameras do And yet there are shots of the landscapes. They get those tree shots. They get these farm shots. They get these really beautiful time-lapse shots. And those are gorgeous. There's something going on here that I'm like, I don't know if they had two different cinematographers or like what's (laughs) happening. But there's these like cuts of what looks like a black and white student film intercut with these Bergman looking shot. <laughs> like the the second unit photography was done by a Hollywood professional and then everything else was done by German film students. Yeah. And so like, <laughs> but a lot of those shots, yeah, like it's basically anything where the main action isn't the characters. It's the cars driving on the streets and the interplay of light. Like there are some gorgeous shots in this film and it adds like a certain creepiness. I love that they chose to do it in black and white. It's really taking its time. There's a shot of after the meteorite lands that it just focuses on the soil. So it's a very extreme close-up shot of the soil. And these little buds just start to, in a very quick time-lapse sort of thing, pop out from the earth. And it's just disjointed enough in its time-lapse because it's kind of skipping some frames. Sure. And that one moment of watching buds grow out of the soil in what seems like too fast of a way from what it naturally should is way more intriguing than like anything (laughs) in the 2019 film. It also becomes this weird combination of you get these Ingmar Bergman type of shots, you get these rotoscoping techniques like straight out of some 1940s like film noir. It feels like you're watching such a combination of just historical filmmaking combined together into one narrative feature. And then, like, the flashbacks where it goes to the farm, there's, like, this weird magical realism because the guy's telling him, yeah, apparently the crops grew really big. And it flashes to these farmers that are going up into the pear tree and picking these pears that are, like, as big as their heads. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bizarre combination of filmmaking techniques. And that alone makes it kind of a pleasurable exercise to watch. So in a way where it's, like, like I said, I don't always require that a film capture Lovecraft as long as it can stand up on its own as like a watchable thing and like this one so far does um but I also like that yeah it's black and white except for the color out of space so the color is like the one color that comes into the frame and also a magenta purple so they all right huh that's now to give it a look if I have a chance yeah it's, it's a really cool exercise so it's one of those things where I was like I want to know like the people who are involved with this like they need some money and they need some actual film equipment. Like, let them do their thing. Oh, I, I, that's the kind of indie film I appreciate, though. When you can really see some, like, like a really great idea coming through, like a lack of resources. That's really cool. I'll, t- I'll check that out. But yeah. Yeah. Top five. 
All right. My honorable mention is going to go to whoever wrote the trailer for The Curse, because that was the most fun thing to discover while doing all this. Will the Wheaton gross. from Stand By Me the- must stand alone. Like, oh, god damn, that's amazing. My number five will go to the cinematography photographed by Steve Ennis. Uh, I really just love the use of color in this film. I mean, the color should be good in a movie called Color Out of Space. But the way they chose to represent that alien color, I think, was very ingenious. Like, as I stated earlier, magenta being an extra special color that cannot be replicated by a singular source in nature. So, well done. Good choices were made there. Yes, my honorable mention goes to the puppeteers and practical effects artists. I might not have liked that monsters made their way into this movie, but they did a nice job on those effects. So The monsters were great. I just wish they weren't there. And number five for me also goes to the cinematographer in the light. Very good. Because of the magenta, but then also those subtle rainbow shimmers. Mm. That's what I wanted the way through. Kind of reminded me of Annihilation a little bit. So that's another adaptation, I guess, film adaptation based off of Color Out of Space in a very light way. Like the novel that Annihilation is based on was influenced by Color Out of Space. And Annihilation might actually be the most accurate tonal representation of H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. My number four is uh, going to give up to Madeline Arthur playing Lavinia here. A uh, very cool role. Would have been easy to go a little overboard with this character. I think given what she was uh, had to work with there was very cool. Okay, this might be a very easy upshot because number four, Lavinia. What the fuck? Uh, All right. I don't like when we sync up. It's weird. I, I like that girl. I liked her style. She had mm-hmm. some great style. Yeah, she was a a believable little Golden Dawn initiate. Number three uh, for me is the creature effects. Like I say, I I love Cronenberg-style body horror, uh, which was done very well in this movie. You just gave that an honorable mention because uh, that's just No, I mean, they were fabulous. They were Uh, really great. I just, yeah, since I bitched about them being in it, like, I I can't say it's my favorite thing about the movie. No, nor I didn't have anything favorite about this movie. So, no, why would you? But no, I, I appreciate that. I like that they were going for a semi-practical uh, approach to the creature horror in this thing. It would have been very easy to just go full CGI. I, I, you reimagine look, those attic scenes of the mother, and it's all CGI. That would have been a pretty big disappointment. would have looked like that bug, that magenta mantis, <laughs> all the way through. Although in the making of, they did mention like that was like the hardest thing to do is that magenta uh, mantis because, you know, it was all visual effects, yeah. and they had to like blend it in. And I'm like, or you just could have skipped it, honestly. <laughs> But I, I do like that they tried. Once again, like, I really do respect everybody involved with this project after watching that feature. Like, mm-hmm. I feel bad bad-mouthing the movie because that's how much they won me over. But, you know, you I'm, feel I'm a grumpy bitch sometimes. Yeah, what are you gonna do? Well, sometimes. Wow. Okay. Well, usually, like, I feel like when there's movies that one of us doesn't like, it's usually you. This is, I think, the first movie that I'm just like, bah. Yeah, number three for me, Tommy Chung. He's, he's just so great. Like, I can't critique anything about him. He is a fabulous individual. Even on the, the making of where Richard Stanley just mentioned that Tommy Chung is a walking advertisement for substance abuse. Like, he just, <laughs> <laughs> he's just the coolest guy. And, and he's still, like, just in this, like, great shape and health. And, yeah, you just want to be stoned all the time when you look at him. And, yeah, he's just cool. Right. And he was underutilized in this film. He should have been in so many more scenes. 
I just wanted more of him. Once again, like, take out some of these, like, shock moments and just let Tommy Chug and Nicolas Cage, like, descend into insanity. Like, that's really what we need here. My number two is Nicolas Cage, because he gives us everything that we could have wanted from a Nicolas Cage performance. Gives us callbacks to the greatest Nicolas Cage performance from Vampire's Kiss. I think I saw in the trivia for this movie that Richard Stanley was a very big fan of his performance in that movie, mentioned that to Nicolas Cage, so Cage just said, <laughs> okay, well, you like that, I can, I'll can, give you a little taste of that action if you want to. Let's and just make it a sequel. Stanley just says, all right, let's do that. That's fair. Mm-hmm. My number two is Elliot Knight, Ford Phillips. All right. It's a tough He role. also did not have enough to do in this movie. Yeah. But with the exception of like kind of me mentioning that like I don't think his voice in the beginning quite worked for the voiceover. It worked mm-hmm. at the end for the voiceover, but for some reason to me, not in the beginning. But the rest of him just worked so well. Like he has this very warm presence on screen mm-hmm. in a movie that was kind of lacking warmth. And yeah, I just believed him as this genuine guy that just wanted to help and he also had a certain kind of simultaneously wise naivete like he he pulled off the like miskatonic university student thing like he was bringing (laughs) some hp lovecraft vibes for me in terms of naive miskatonic student gets sucked into this world and so i would have liked him to be actually our primary character that we followed all the way through right on i could see that my number one i'm gonna give it up to tommy chong which might sound strange to put Tommy Chung so high up on this list, but what what really fascinated me about him in this movie is that typically when Tommy Chung is put into roles in films like nowadays, it's very much like a callback to his legacy or to his you know persona, which this is too. But I feel like he actually has a few moments that he's given to actually kind of act in this thing, which mm-hmm. he is not normally given. It's often just like a joke cameo. Uh, where he has no room for variation, but here he is showing like actual intensity when he is describing like the sounds beneath the the earth uh, to Ward and what have you. So I like that this is an opportunity for him to actually get to be an actor as opposed to just a figurehead or a, a pop culture concept. And he delivered, too. Yeah. I mean, he was so great That's in what... this role. I believed everything he said. He was almost my number two. He just needed to be in one more scene to, to make it up there. Which, but, like, yeah, yeah, it's he's... kind of disappointing knowing that he was that there were some deleted scenes that had more fun from him. So that is kind of a downer, really, to know that now. Yeah, he he was essential, mm-hmm. for sure. And he actually did fit into this film. Like, you're, I was kind of thinking, he's going to show up, and it's going to be totally dissonant. But it wasn't at all. Like, he he belonged. Yeah. Uh, my number one, Nick Cage. Nick Cage. He. What are the odds? He delivered on this film every moment of insanity. Like every time he just lit up the screen, I was just like, yes, like you just need to trust your actors like this more. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Tommy Chong more to just let them be in this space in terms of this increasing paranoia. Like, and the revisitation to the vampire's kiss, really just everything. Yeah, like Nick Cage brought it. I just don't think he was given the space that like could have really, mm-hmm. yeah, carried the film a little bit more. Um, and then I do like that Nick Cage has repeatedly mentioned that his favorite genre is family drama. That he loves the family drama genre. All right. And this makes sense because he does a lot of them, and especially in recent years. But 
he was on board with this film right away because it's his favorite genre. Family of drama horror, I guess, is his favorite. Yeah. The only reason that Nick Cage was not my number one, because he is, he, I mean, take it by far and away the best performance in the movie and gives you exactly what you want. He wasn't my number one because while it was amazing, I expected that from him. I did not expect to walk away from this film saying to myself, wow, Tommy John can actually act. Yeah, the fact fair. the movie like, gave me that, that's what elevated Tommy Chong to number one for me. It was cute watching the making of. A lot of people brought up Nick Cage, and every single person was just clearly in love with Nick Cage well, on this production. Sure. And they all referenced a different type of work of his, which was interesting, but expected that they were interviewing the girl who played Lavinia, and she's like, yeah, Moonlight is one of my favorite movies, I grew up on the the whole like yeah moonstruck whatever kind of thing and then they're interviewing you know tommy chong and he's like yeah his that, like that neo schmantic you know whatever like i just love his surreal craziness like we totally belong in films together and then they were interviewing like the little boy who played jack and he's like i don't know if you've seen like into the spider verse but like he's really good in that and i was really excited to like you he know be in the cage true. so like through this like, interview series, it's like, wow, like he has just touched and maintained this cinematic rapport with so many different generations of people. Because you've got from Jack to Tommy Chong that are just enamored with Nick Cage. And yeah, anyway. So, uh. color out of space. I'd say if you want to watch Nick Cage go crazy in a magenta lighting, just go watch Mandy. True, true. And if you want to watch Richard Stanley, like, just go watch Hardware Dust Devil. Mm, true. Also true. If you want to watch Color Out of Space, just go watch this German student film. <laughs> <laughs> These are all options. All options available to you. And if you want to get a creepy vibe of H.P. Lovecraft, play Eternal Darkness Sandy's Requiem on the Nintendo GameCube, which was a video game that took a lot of inspiration from H.P. Lovecraft. Okay, I'll have to play that one and see. Yeah, see if people that you know have the heads up on Eternal Darkness. That was a really cool game. Uh, should be more like it, but there's not. All right. Well, I think I have uh, stared into Technicolor for a little bit too long, London. You got a cure for that? I demand that we perhaps go put on that German student film instead and watch something that's rather monochromatic. <laughs>
I open the door and shh, when I see This is the color song, come on and sing along Even if you sing it wrong, sing it loud and sing it strong At the end of every line, say the color that could rhyme There's a few you might not know, it gets harder as you go It's hard to think when I see I feel old when I see I think of Wilbur when I see I open the door hinge when I see This is the color song, come on and sing along Even if you sing it wrong, sing it loud and sing it strong At the end of every line, say the color that could rhyme There's a few you might not know, it gets harder as you go I'm a fan when I see I call a pilot when I see It's no big deal when I see I open the door hinge when I see, I open the door hinge. When I see orange. When I see orange. When I see orange. When I see escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!